Welcome to Rage Worth Watching, where we're working our way through the history of films that rage against the machine. And today we're covering one of the earliest well-known rage-filled films, A Face in the Crowd. I'm your host, a man who would be president if only I could stand to sing country music. My co-host is Guy, who is the real writer of this podcast, but gets stuck in obscurity in the back room. Hello, Guy. Yeah. Hello, Ron. And our returning guest today is Maura Spiegel, professor at Columbia in the Department of English and Comparative Literature. Hello, Maura. Hello. So, uh, really glad to have you back to help us out with this one. Now, neither Guy or I had seen this film before, so we only knew of it by reputation. But even though it's a pretty old film by now, I just kept seeing references to it, which, you know, made us want to see it. So you had a choice of films on our list and you chose this one. What, what made you choose this one? Well, you know, I've been kind of thinking about this film for a really long time. I, um, taught it many, many years ago. I, if you're interested, I can talk about that, but mm -hmm. sure. one of the things that really get, grabs me now is really since the Trump phenomenon, the film has exploded in terms of critical attention. Mm -hmm. And and that's been really interesting to watch. And and um, I noticed that TCM played the film on Trump's inauguration day. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the pertinence of the film, the almost, you know, the uncanny elements of, you know, the echoes to our own time. And I read somewhere that um, in 2000, I think it was 2010, Patricia Neal appeared at a post-screening of the film in um, Hollywood. The audience was asked, how many of you seeing Lonesome Roads on TV would trust him or be drawn to him? Hmm. And the response was only a very tepid smattering of applause. And later that year, season 10 of The Apprentice premiered on NBC. <laughs> so I think it's really interesting, <laughs> that side of it. But I first encountered the film, I don't know, probably about 20 years ago, but the, I was teaching a course called The Man in the Crowd. So, mm. and it was really a course on films between World War One and Two, uh, looking at the crowd in Soviet films, the crowd in German films, and the crowd in American films. And so it was sort of about sort of communist representations Nazi, you know, and pre-Nazi yeah. representations and ideas about democracy as represented in film. And I put this film up against a Frank Capra movie, Meet John Doe from 1941, which yeah. has the story of a sort of fascist, um, sort of secret fascist plot that uses the sort of um, innocent figure of Gary Cooper, who has caught the public imagination through his... Yeah you know, his sort of simple, virtuous representations of Americanness. And he mm -hmm. gets used as this front to draw Americans into this sort of, you know, unbeknownst to them, they're being sucked into this really awful political situation. And it's so interesting to me, the films are about 16 years apart and they, they're speaking into radically different Americas. And um, mm. their pre preoccupations, I mean, the guy who's the villain, the fascist, owns, he's bought, and he's sort of corporatized newspapers. He's bought a mm. whole range of, of newspapers. So that's his media control. It's not television. 
but it's a, a, a rather a sim similar structure in that way. But you have in Capra this tremendous sort of um, rescuing and and celebrating of American innocence. Mm. And in Kazan, you have this real damning of populism and the appeal mm. of, of populist demagoguery to a, a segment of the American culture, but also the same idea of someone, a puppet master behind the scenes, uh, manipulating public opinion through a character who appears to have this folksy down-home quality. Mm -hmm. And, and we'll probably get into this in, in more detail in our later discussion, but I feel like this is one of those stories that we just keep retelling, right? I, I've never seen Bob Roberts, but I think that is a version of this, and uh, Network is very certainly a version of this. <laughs> yeah, I've, it's been a while, but I've seen Bob Roberts several times. And, uh, yeah, there is that uh, that kind of uh, folksy presentation, and then uh, behind the scenes he's got all kinds of schemes and... Uh, looks down on uh on his public and so forth so yeah. yeah definitely a similarity there yeah there is um you know all the king's men i mean there's so many i think portrayals of this american predicament you know <laughs> and it is often it really is often uh a rendering i think of uh kind of rural versus urban ideals and a sense of the longing of rural America to be seen and felt, you know, and sort of addressed in a way that they feel they aren't being, hmm. you know, I guess it's, it's Richard Hofstetter who talks about populism as appealing hmm. to sort of American, you know, provincialism and, and resentment hmm. and sort of some, you know, idea of the villainizing of, something called the elite as being a kind of cancer on American society. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's really uh, a part of the DNA of the country because I'm remembering, I think uh, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote about this and it's true, you know, hundreds of years ago from the, from the start of the country that there would every few years be this wave often of religious populism that would go through the country often, you know, again, fronted by some figure who is very popular. Like this has happened in our history just over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, from Huey Long, Joe McCarthy, as you, Father Coughlin and, and right, many others. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into some of those in a little more detail, but so what did you get out of teaching it? Did, did that process or how the students responded tell yeah. you anything or? Yeah. Well, it was really interesting, you know, having taught it years ago, and then teaching it recently, and students were like, whoa, <laughs> they were kind of freaked out. I mean, but of course, there is this dramatic difference, which is that, you know, the spell at the end of this movie gets broken mm -hmm. through revelation, <laughs> whereas in our current, the movie we're living in, <laughs> or the reality <laughs> TV show we're living in, it doesn't seem to get broken, although maybe it's starting to crack at the moment, given these hearings. But I think the, the, you know, the statements like uh, "we love the uneducated," you know, and um, <laughs> statements about "I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue," and you know, 
they'd all still love me. I mean, these are very much the kinds of things. I mean, the in the movie in Face in the Crowd, they they drew upon a a, a story from you know recent history, a radio story about a guy called Uncle Don, and we get a reference to it in the film. There's a mm-hmm. quick shot of a of a newspaper headline that says something like LR, you know, worse than Uncle Don. You know, um, <laughs> Uncle Don was a, he re- he had a children's show. And at the end of the show, he said, this is Uncle Don saying goodnight, we're off. And then he said, thinking that the, that the sound was off, good, that will hold the little bastards. And mm, it was, yeah, you know, just that. destroyed him. That was the end of him. Well, you know? well. So that, that kind of idea of, somebody appearing to be the truth teller, appearing to be the one who is sincere and really, uh, when that's exposed, you know, having, having this enormous consequence, whereas it doesn't, it's really fascinating. It doesn't happen <laughs> right, anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the film was actually a mixed success on its release, right? It seemed to become more popular and more well-considered, I think, over the years. Do you have any thoughts on why that would have been? Yeah, it's really interesting, some of the early reactions. I mean, you know, people hated it. A lot of people hated it. Hmm. You know, it was completely ignored by the, you know, Academy after Kazan had just won, you know, for um, on the waterfront. And, and um, I, one of the things I thought was so interesting was the New York Times saying that this type, meaning Lonesome Roads, would either have become a harmless habit or the public would have been finished with him. So this <laughs> idea that, <Yeah. laughs> you know, like um, this was not plausible that this man was a real threat, you right, know, right. was part of the reaction at the time. And I've heard in interviews Bud Schulberg say the world hadn't needed to catch up to the movie. Mm. And I think it's it is fascinating. I mean, the, this the film is so filled with so many agendas that I think you know we can talk about. But I think part of it really was that, in some way, I don't know if you if you see it this way. In comparing it to Capra, it becomes very vivid. There's a way in which the film doesn't give us anybody to totally identify mm. with. I see a kind of parallel with Streetcar Named Desire. You know, this Stanley Kowalski and Lonesome Roads, these two really problematic male characters and these women who love them despite that. So we have these women's views of them that kind of take us. But I think that the film really wanted to, in some way, arouse critical consciousness rather than Hollywood seduction. Do you know what I mean? Like, Rather than just draw us in and make us feel good, it wanted mm. us to to have a critical relationship to it, and people didn't like that. You know, that wasn't what you went mm. to the movies for. You know, it wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't fun. And um, I think that was a piece of it. I mean, I think of the the sequence of um, the montage that follows on his Vitajex success mm. Mm. was such a mockery of the classic Hollywood rising montage which inevitably was a kind of celebration of american success and here it's just really you know like what is happening (laughs) (laughs) i think there's just a lot of unfamiliar 
strategies for, you know, and, and this film was made actually Kazan started his own film company after he had all the success with On the Waterfront. So he made it outside the classic studio system. But it was uh, it was the second film he made, uh, or the, it was the second film produced by that company and the last film produced by that company. Uh-huh. So, yeah. I was just going to say during that montage, it really, uh, if I remember right, it was during the montage that we see him like getting a mountain named after him yeah. and a, a warship. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so he definitely, uh, definitely accrued some influence in a big way. <laughs> yeah. We don't have any of that beautiful music that makes you feel, I think of the great, the most classic montage to me is the Rocky montage, you know, <laughs> which is in every Rocky movie, you know, where he's getting strong now, you know, oh, yeah. and that, that it's a feel good experience you know and in this in this film i mean especially following the vitajex montage which is you know grotesque in all these different ways <laughs> and kind of also it seems to me it merges uh sexual power with the rising of the ratings right so sort of like you see this mm-hmm. you know rising image almost like a thermometer right, of liquid coming up. I mean, it's really like, mm-hmm. oh my God, what is this, you know? <laughs> so you have this kind of money-making, sexual power, you know, I mean, it's all kind of mixed together in a really ugly fashion. <laughs> yeah, you had like the three uh, the three singers for Vitajex in their skimpy <laughs> outfits. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. Well, yeah, um, can talk about it more again later. I was surprised at the explicitness they got away with. Like, you know, with, when you see all of these cheerleaders, they're really doing these crotch shots and stuff. You're like, wow, I didn't think you could do that at the time. But speaking of Ilya Kazan, I mean, he's such a fascinating guy. On the one hand, he did these films where he was really trying to, um, you know, like Sidney Lumet, cover sort of societal things that he felt we needed to look at. On the other hand, he, you know, obviously is almost most famous for naming names during the House Committee on Un-American Activities, and that was in 1952. So it kind of surprised me, because that's five years before this film. I was thinking that there was sort of a Hollywood backlash against him, but here he is making a major film, and he might have probably even made films in between. Do you know about his sort of um, experience in that, in that period after he did that? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I'm not an expert by any means, but I I do know that there was a huge backlash. I mean, partially because after naming names in public, he um he took an ad out in the New York Times the next day, uh not apologizing, but saying that others should name names and and saying because you're a liberal doesn't mean you need to be a Stalinist, mm-hmm. which was not a bad point to make, you know. But um <laughs> People really were very unhappy with him from his world, which, you know, they all had come out of the 30s and the group theater and the actor studio. And they were all, they'd all, I mean, Kazan and Schulberg were both members of the Communist Party. That's where they got called before the hearing. And everybody who was sort of in the arts, intellectual, pretty much uh, sympathized with the left in the 30s. And so that felt like a huge betrayal. 
He then made, you know, on the waterfront, which people felt also was a kind of self-justifying film because it sort of, it justified the Marlon Brando character kind of ratting, you know, I mean, he doesn't, Mm -hmm. within the logic of the film, it's the right thing to do, but it's still showing somebody, you know, naming names in a way. And Mm. And one thing that I've thought watching this film, Face in the Crowd, which Seems obvious to me, but I've never seen anybody say it, so I'm timid to approach to you know propose it. But it seemed to me that because he and Schulberg, who also had named names, and that's how they mm. kind of became connected to each other, Schulberg reached out to Kazan after after Kazan was being slammed, and Schulberg said, "I did it too. I feel for you." That they wanted to make a film that attacked the right wing since mm. they were attacked for attacking the left wing, if you see yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Um, and so that was, I think... Street credibility. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To, to, and the film was actually, even people who were really angry at him, liberals really liked this film and conservatives really hated this film. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so that's, that seems to be, I mean, that seems to me to possibly have been something that was going on with him at the time. It sounds very plausible, yeah. I'm wondering, I mean, of course, I'm sure that there were films that would count with our theme before this, but it's the earliest film we could think of. And I was thinking that Elmer Gantry might have been an earlier film that had sort of a somewhat similar story. But even though the book was in the 20s, I see that the movie actually came out after this. So I don't know, is, is this... Can you think of a film earlier than this, or is this sort of the first what we might think of uh, as a film in this genre, at least in the United States? Oh, gosh, I can't remember the date of All the King's Men, but I think it might be a little earlier. Um, I don't think I'm familiar with that. I think there might be some, I think there are probably quite a few movies. I didn't really go looking for early movies, but I'm thinking maybe one of the James Cagney gangster movies might count as a Rage Against the Machine I, film. I, I was thinking of that too, Guy. I really was thinking of James Cagney. Like, with uh-huh. that, you know, there's a wonderful essay about the gangster which proposes that the gangster is sort of the dark side of the American rising story, you know, mm-hmm. which sort of fits with your connecting it to that, you know, certainly yeah. those gangsters were pretty, pretty much raising against the machine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all the kings, which I'm not familiar with was 1949. So that did come earlier than this about, by about yeah. a decade almost or so. Yeah. All right. Well, um, this certainly, I think is probably the most well-known early one, but, uh, not, not the first. So now, um, Guy and I will retreat to the smoke-filled back room (laughs) and watch a screening of this film and talk through it, and then we will come back and have a discussion with you. (laughs) Well, Guy and I are now going to walk through the film in some detail. And if you are already really familiar with the film, or you just want to hear more of our discussion with Maura, We have bookmarks on this episode, so you can just skip ahead, but we hope a few people will stick around and listen to us talk about it. Okay, Okay, guy, tell us about this film. (laughs) 
There's a lot of telling to be done. I, I, for <laughs> some reason, I took extra detailed notes this time. I think it's just because it's a dense film. There's a lot of stuff packed into it, and there are a lot of little things that sort of uh, foreshadow what's coming down the pike. So, uh, so this this will be a little bit uh, more drawn out than usual, perhaps. But uh, let's give it a try. <laughs> The opening titles, uh, come on with big Western style block letters, you know, like you'd see on the old signs over the general store. Yeah. And, uh, and there's some whistling and guitar. It might, uh, might even be Andy Griffith himself, but it's very, uh, very down homey, you know, sitting in a nice laid back country atmosphere. And then we see a small town park and there are some small town guys in the small town park playing checkers. One of them sees a car pull up and it has Kagurk written on the side. <laughs> it's KGRK, it's the local radio station. Uh, and just out of curiosity, I looked this up. There actually is a Wyoming radio station with that name and it wasn't started till 1997. So <laughs> at the time. I suspect huh? they probably, I suspect they probably borrowed that, <laughs> that name. Yeah. So, uh. This fellow who sees the car pull up, he calls to Miss Jeffries in the car, and he says he has what she's looking for. He further says there's always a good haul over the 4th of July. So uh, that makes a little bit of intrigue right from the start there. <laughs> and uh, they drive to a building that looks like a two-story house, not anything particularly distinctive about it. A fellow there invites invites her in and this fella turns out to be the sheriff and miss jeffries uh, has to take a moment to get her tape recorder from her car and she's all kind of dolled up here i mean she has this very nice sort of white suit on and i think she had a white hat mm. as well although i'm not sure how you keep all that clean <laughs> <laughs> yeah so inside this building uh there's a big communal jail cell it's got about a dozen guys in it uh, the sheriff introduces her, uh, she's Marsha and she's a reporter with a show called a face in the crowd, uh, on her uncle's radio station. Yeah. And it, at first, you know, because they make it clear right off, it's her uncle's station. So obviously that's why she was able to do this show. So you kind of, you know, you kind of might start off with a bit of an assumption that she's just a nepotism case, but, uh, mm -hmm. but as we'll see, she holds her own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the sheriff tells her the jail of Tommyhawk County is at your disposal. <laughs> and, uh, Marcia tells, uh, tells the men in the cell that this is completely informal. They can sing songs, tell jokes, just say whatever they want to say. Most of them don't seem interested. There's uh, a, <laughs> well, well, you know, I can relate. I mean, there is a way here in which he's kind of treating this like a zoo, right? You're oh, like, oh, yeah. I'm just going to come in and <laughs> you guys perform for me now. <laughs> so, well, screw you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She, uh, it, she just sort of takes it for granted that, uh, they're going to cooperate. One of these men, Beanie, he's, um, he's a kind of middle-aged looking guy, kind of lanky. He sings sometimes, but, uh, he says he can't today <laughs> because he doesn't have his teeth with him. Yeah, I can relate. <laughs> Marsha, uh, begins recording on her reel to reel recorder and she, uh, while she's talking into the microphone, uh, she reveals her credo, which is that people are fascinating wherever you find them. 
so she's going to find somebody fascinating. Well, this reminds me one day, I think I was in Los Angeles or something. And there was this probably like local NPR station, you know, reporter woman who was, um, I think taking this credo, right. And so she's interviewing, uh, a homeless guy on the street and he's just raving on about whatever he's raving on about. And she's clearly bored, but it's like, <laughs> yes, we're going to come out here and talk to the people. <laughs> yeah. They can't all be winners, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think she had found, uh, her Andy Griffiths. <laughs> so the, the sheriff, uh, looking around for somebody who wants to cooperate. Um, he talks to a black fellow who is in a different cell. I, it's mm -hmm. not spoken uh, overtly, but it's apparently it's a segregated cell, you know, to keep him out from the cell with the, the white guys in it. Yeah, it's it's kind of disturbing because he actually really is um, detained right in a small space. All the other guys can roam around this big room and, you know, and, and as we'll see, Andy Griffith has his guitar there and has alcohol in the guitar case and, oh, yeah. and all this, but, you know, but the black guy is stuck in this little, like three by three, you know, cell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. He got the short end of the stick on this one, but this fella, he declines to perform also. He says, uh, just because <laughs> he has black skin doesn't mean he's a minstrel. Uh, yeah, good for him. <laughs> yeah. So, uh. The sheriff finally recalls that they, uh, they have a new drunk in the jail. Uh, he's a guy with a guitar named Rhodes. And, uh, I, I want to mention my little theory here that, uh, nobody cares about probably, but, uh, <laughs> in the video game, Red Dead Redemption 2, there's a deep South town that's named Rhodes. And I mm -hmm. think, I think they probably gave it that name as a tribute to this. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I never, I started that game about five times. <laughs> I never got through it. Although I love the first game, but. Oh yeah. Well, when you finally get into this one, you'll, you'll probably like. So one of the, one of the prisoners, uh, gives Mr. Rhodes a kick and he isn't happy to be disturbed. However, once Marcia starts talking to him and he gets a look at her, he's a, he's a little more receptive. Yep. But he still asks, what do I get out of this? <laughs> Reasonable question. <laughs> So, uh, the sheriff, the sheriff makes a deal that, uh, he'll let him out tomorrow morning instead of a week from now, which was the original plan. You know, Rhodes is a little skeptical. He's, he's heard that the sheriff doesn't always stick to his word, but, uh, you know, he decides to give it a try. Rhodes won't give Marsha his first name. So she names him lonesome that he, uh, he laughs at that. <laughs> he has a, has a swig from a flask. And he gets his guitar ready. His guitar's name is Mama. And, uh, he says, I never have seen a woman I can trust like this old guitar. And while he's getting the guitar ready, Marsha surreptitiously turns on her tape recorder. Yeah, because he wanted to warm up, right? He, yeah. doesn't, he, he doesn't want to embarrass himself or anything. Right. But uh, it turns out that he's pretty much ready to go already. So uh, Beanie suggests that he should sing Rye Whiskey. Other guys in the cell, they have their own suggestions, but, but Rhodes just improvises a song, uh, free man in the morning. And, uh, <laughs> it's going to turn out to be a recurring theme throughout this, mm -hmm. uh, the whole movie. It's a very bluesy song. It reminds me of like an early Elvis song. Oh, good night, moon, moon, you just fade 
fade, fade, fade away. Oh, good night, moon. Moon, you just fade away. And hurry up, Mr. Sun. Bring on new day. Oh, bring on the sheriff. Arkansas with his great big old fat key to open up his nasty filthy jailhouse and make a free man of me. How about that, Louis? Haven't you got any objection to being a free man in the morning? No, sir, I ain't. <laughs> Gonna be a free man in the morning. Free man in the morning. Free man in the morning. I oh, know the reason. All right, I'm raised. I'll ever be. Thank you, Lonesome Roads. That was just fine. And he sings about Big Jeff, the sheriff of Pickett, Arkansas. And, uh, of course, Big Jeff is standing right there watching. (laughs) He doesn't seem very amused at all. Uh, And this is a theme in the film. Whenever there's someone sort of in authority over him, the first thing he does is find a way to make fun of them or undermine (laughs) them. You know, he can't accept anyone in in authority also interesting yeah. though he did all his own singing which i think helps a lot and he had been he had been both a singer before this and a comedian and i think both those things really served him well oh yeah in this movie yeah he's uh he, he really uh it's a it's a bang-up performance all around i think so the sheriff's not pleased but marcia seems very pleased she's just <laughs> really enjoying this so <laughs> she very, very obviously shoves her little basket with the uh, microphone in it towards him. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Rhodes says that he's as ready as he'll ever be. And this is when Marsha reveals that the tape was running the whole time. Yep. <laughs> and back at the radio station, Marsha and her uncle JB are listening to her tape. Uh, the uncle's impressed. And Marsha says she'd like to have Rhodes on the radio station's morning show. So JB calls the jail and he finds out that Big Jeff let him out in accordance with the agreement. He probably didn't go west because he just came from jail in West Pickett. So he's <laughs> probably going the other direction. Yes, yeah, basically their lifestyle is go to a new town, get drunk, you know, probably punch somebody, uh, go to jail for a week, and then move on to the next town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's an early indicator also of, uh, that, you know, Rhodes is not, you know, what you might call a solid citizen type of guy. <laughs> so JB and Marsha head out on the East road and they find Rhodes walking with Beanie. Marsha introduces her uncle and the uncle says some pleasantries and Rhodes does something interesting here. That may be another little window into his character. He turns his head away from the car. He doesn't respond to the uncle. Rather, he turns his head away from the car and he spits into the dirt. It's just, um, you know, it's a very, under the circumstances, it seems inappropriate. You know, it seems uh, Mm. seems deliberately rude. But uh, finally, Rhodes says that he's headed to St. Joe, Florida. J.B., despite... uh, Rhodes' little insult there, uh, JB offers him a job at the station, but Rhodes isn't interested. He says, it's too much like work, man. (laughs) 
So Marsha asks him, though, what if he had a plane ticket to Florida that he could keep in his pocket, and if he wanted to go, he could just go. Yeah, I guess plane tickets worked a little differently back then. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, exactly what I was thinking. It's not quite so straightforward nowadays. <laughs> so Lonesome finally says he'll try it for a day. He gets in the car, and he leaves Beanie to walk the Lonesome Roads alone. Yeah, and Beanie does this kind of dismissive wave at him. He's clearly upset. And, they, you know, he could have said, oh, and you need to bring... Because Beanie had said earlier in the jail that he was Rhodes' manager. <laughs> it's not clear how true that was at the time or not. But he could have said, oh, you need to bring my friend along with us. And he doesn't. So, yeah. you know, yeah. So, Marsha, Marsha, we, we see her getting lonesome situated in his hotel room, uh, He's going through the clothes in his suitcase. Uh, he has a bra in there for some reason. <laughs> so either he's a cross-dresser or, you know, somebody left something behind. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's for you to decide. Yeah. I'm thinking it's uh, just a little souvenir. <laughs> Lonesome makes himself comfortable on the bed uh, with a flask, and he invites her to join him. She's not having any of it. She says, we have to hurry. In the studio, Lonesome is singing. Uh, he's right near the end of his show, and Marsha holds up a three-minute sign at the window. So he cuts off his song, and uh, he complains a little uh, about the uh, the hurrying and the scheduling and all that. And tells us, but I think one of the things he he repeatedly does is he throws everyone else off by telling people what's happening. So he says to his audience, "Oh." The producer just told me I have three minutes, you know, so I'm going to do, you know, whatever. But I, I think it's part of his technique always to be in control. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, probably a psychological aspect to it, you know, letting the audience in on what's going on behind the scenes type of thing. Mm -hmm. So he tells a story about uh, his hometown of Riddle and one of his uncles who was always in a hurry. And then he segues into the plight of unappreciated housewives. <laughs> so, uh, again, another little psychological gambit where he's building up, uh, building up solidarity with this audience. Yeah. And we see, I mean, this is the whole way he builds all his popularity, right? Is he, he takes some downtrodden group and relates to them and tells their story and then they really like him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As he's talking about the unappreciated housewives, he talks about the food that burns onto the stovetop. And we see a woman cleaning out her oven at home, listening to the show. And we see her smile and say, now, how would he ever know that? <laughs> <laughs> There's another funny one. I remember he was like criticizing husbands or whatever and how they don't help out. And we see this couple, older couple at the table and the husband's like, well, I got to go to work now. Because <laughs> clearly his wife is staring at him as she's hearing this. <laughs> so next we see Marsha reading Lonesome's fan mail. Uh, the mail that's come in since he gave that little speech. And one of the, one of the mails, uh, one of the letters says, uh, only a saint could understand the burdens of a housewife like you do. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that Lonesome is a saint, but perhaps uh, he has at least seen housewives doing actual housework. So that mm -hmm. could also explain it. <laughs> Marsha and JB go to JB's office, and uh, Lonesome is there snoring in JB's chair. He's got his feet propped up on the desk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just another one of those little, you know, stick it to the boss things you know yeah so jb's phone rings he answers it and he gets a new advertising or 
and he seems pleased with that. He he tells Marsha that she found him and it's her job to keep him. <laughs> and uh, at hearing this, Lonesome laughs. His eyes are closed, so it's uh, he could just be laughing in, in his sleep, but it seems like he's probably woke up when the phone rang. He's just amused. <laughs> so later on, uh, Lonesome and Marsha are at a bar. He says his real intimate friends call him Larry. And he's drinking two-fisted. He's got a bottle in each hand. And uh, <laughs> Marsha comments on it. And he says, back in Riddle, it was strict. Folks weren't allowed to touch liquor until they were 10 or 11. <laughs> My understanding, by the way, in, is that in France... A lot of families will let their kids drink some wine pretty early on, but it's part mm -hmm. of, you know, being at the dinner table with everybody else, right? And if anything, yeah. it might, uh, help kids not, you know, become binge drinkers because they've been gently introduced to it as part of a social environment and that sort of thing. Where like here in the U S how do you learn about drinking? It's when all your friends are having keggers in high school, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's a little digression there. Well, yeah, yeah. I've, I, I've heard the same thing about uh, various European countries. I think Canada's drinking age is 18, if I recall correctly. I'm not sure. I think in Mexico mm. also. Yeah, the U.S. has some, uh, some odd laws about that sort of thing. <laughs> anyway, uh, Lonsome says that uh, his dad was a spieler. And uh, I looked it up, and it's it's something like a snake oil salesman, you know, almost mm -hmm. a Carney Barker type guy trying to sell stuff. You know, he gives the example of his dad saying uh, he'll take a dollar from people in the audience, and he says, and I will give you all a five dollar gift. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, kind of a kind of a glib huckster type. Mm -hmm. I was disappointed that he didn't say like what the gift was. I wanted to know. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It reminded me of on Deadwood where there's this annoying guy roaming around the main thoroughfare saying, soak with the prize inside. <laughs> it's like, I just won $5. You know, obviously just trying to scam people. Right. But, and this is also how carnies work, right? Where, you know, you go and you throw the rings or whatever, and you're trying to get the doll. Well, the doll costs them like 50 cents. Oh yeah. And you're going to spend five bucks. <laughs> To get the doll for your girlfriend, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a can't lose situation. Plus, I guess in a lot of cases, they can actually rig the games so that like when, when he demonstrates throwing a ball through a hole, he can do something so that the hole you have mm -hmm. to throw the ball through is slightly different. Oh yes. I will <laughs> point people to YouTube where you can find all sorts of examples of how these, these cheat games work. Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Lonesome's dad left when Rhodes was just a kid and, uh, Lonesome mentions that, uh, he really wasn't fond of his mom. He doesn't even want to talk about her. Mm -hmm. So Marsha asks about all the aunts and uncles that he keeps mentioning on the show. He's always got some little story about, you know, uncle this or uncle that. And it turns out that the only uncles he knew were the people that his mom brought home to sleep with. Uh, <laughs> he says that I seem to have an uncle in every city. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, not an ideal childhood for, mm. for Larry. And then Marsha makes him laugh and he laughs loudly. You know, he has a real, uh, very distinct, distinctive laugh. 
Uh, she right. says, uh, you put your whole self into that laugh, don't you? He says, Marcia, I put my whole self into everything I do. <laughs> now, I think this laugh is one of the amazing things that he pulls off because the script is asking him to do something almost impossible, right? Which is, as we'll see throughout the film, his laugh is one of the key ways that he sort of controls people or gets people to do things. Right. And for an actor to actually figure out how to make that work, because mm -hmm. <laughs> his laugh really does work, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, I, I just, uh, all, all through this movie, I think he does a tremendous performance. It's, it's really, uh, really remarkable. I mean, uh, I haven't seen an episode of Andrew Griffith show for a long time. I imagine if I watched that again, I'd be impressed with his acting on that show, but this is, uh, this is really something that's just surprising. You know, I mean, yeah. I've never traditionally thought of Andy Griffith as being a really cutting edge actor, you know, <laughs> and, and he, <laughs> he is in this, I, I think. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the sheriff is also in the bar, uh, and he approaches the table. He's upset that Marsha Turned out and in, turned down an invite for me to go out with this tramp. Well, <laughs> of course, that uh, gets uh, gets Larry leaping up from the table, and they get into a fight, and the scene fades out. And next, we see Lonesome in the studio in front of a microphone. He's eating a piece of pie, and on his left eye, he's got a big shiner. <laughs> so that's how that fight turned out. Now we don't know if the sheriff got the worst of it, uh, but. Uh, in general, if you get into a fist fight with the local sheriff, you're probably not going to be standing in front of a microphone the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Word to the wise. So he says, uh, thanks for them pies, gals. Apparently, uh, apparently they've been sending him lots of pies, which, uh, you know, if you've got, uh, if you've got the power of the bully pulpit, you could do a lot worse than to use it to get people to send you pie. <laughs> <clears throat> So he says he's going to end his show with a joke, and the joke is Sheriff Big Jeff Bess. He <laughs> <laughs> goes on to say that back in Riddle, they elect the people who can best be spared from useful work. <laughs> so the village idiot, for example, might become the dog catcher. And at that, he suggests everyone looking to get rid of a mutt should take it over to Big Jeff's place. Next thing we see, uh, this is that two-story house that also serves as the jail building. Uh, it now has about three dozen dogs running around in the yard. There's a big crowd of townsfolk watching with amusement. Lonesome and Marcia drive up in the radio station car, and they have a good laugh. And Marcia asks how it feels being able to say anything that comes into his head and sway people. And he laughs it off at first, but... Then he says, yeah, I guess I can. And they both seem to sober up a little bit. Yeah, and, and he, you know, we're going to see this over and over again. He's learned now that whenever someone is coming after him, he can sort of turn the audience on to them. Mm -hmm. Which I was thinking this is very much like predicting Twitter, right? <laughs> where, mm -hmm. where, you know, somebody sends a nasty message to someone else and then they get all their followers to go after them and dox them, and, uh, you know, yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, an old phenomenon, I guess, manipulating crowds. 
So next we see John Cameron Swayze, who was a well-known name back in the day. I think, uh, if I remember right, in the 70s or 80s, he did some Timex commercials, uh, or some kind of commercials, I think. Years ago, I heard my papa say to my Uncle Herschel, he said, someday our satchmo's going to stop for a Timex commercial. Yes, tonight Timex is proud to be presenting this second Timex All-Star Jazz Show with great stars like Louis Armstrong and Jack T. Garden. And tonight Timex is proud to present for the first time anywhere a great new star. The new Wafer-Thin Waterproof Timex 100. But anyway, in 1957, he was a, a well-known uh, commentator of some sort. He does a little feature on the on the man who sent a mayoral candidate to the dogs. Um, so I did not catch that this was a real person. There are people later on who I knew, but yeah, I didn't oh, know this one. Okay. And then uh, Lonesome is back in his hotel room, and there's a woman in there. And uh, Marsha enters just as the woman's leaving. And Lonesome says loudly, thanks for bringing up my breakfast, but uh, <laughs> he's not fooling. <laughs> so Marsha ushers in Mr. Steiner. He's an agent from Memphis, and he helps people get into the grand old Opry. Lonesome says uh, he's just a country boy. He's not even sure if he wants to stay in this dang old radio business. So the agent, uh, agent takes his leave for now, but, uh, but he says, uh, he'll be in touch. Um, and Lonesome explains to Marsha, he says, uh, it never hurt none to play hard to get. You ought to know about that. <laughs> and, and one thing I think we see here is that he just has an innate business sense, even though he's been a drifter and even though, you know, he's like. I don't know, probably 30 or 35 or something mm -hmm. at this point. So he's been around for a while, but he knows just right off the bat how to play the business game. Mm -hmm. And we'll see more of that. <laughs> oh yeah. So, uh, Marsha seems to disapprove of Lonesome's lady visitors. Uh, <laughs> this, this latest one is not the only one he's had apparently. And, uh, he says, you cold fish, respectable girls. Inside, you crave the same thing as the rest of them. Mm-hmm. And we see Lonesome back in the studio at the microphone again, and he's got multiple electric fans running. It's a hot day. He talks talks about how hot it is on the radio, and he says his <laughs> boss, JB, has a fine swimming pool, and the local kids should head on over and cool off. <laughs> and they do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Next, we see that Marsha and Lonesome have gone over to the pool to broadcast live from poolside. And while they're on the air, uh, Lonesome gets a call from a Memphis TV station. And right on the air, Lonesome negotiates his TV contract. <laughs> the, the offer is 500 a week. So Lonesome offers a couple weeks of a free trial to see if he's going to be a good fit. But if it works out, he wants 1000 a week. And he also wants transportation. And, and this is all, he's just saying this right on the air, you know, so mm -hmm. all the listeners can enjoy. 
he also wants transportation for himself and his little girl Friday, he calls her Marsha. And she looks <laughs> a bit worried at the prospect of that because, uh, you know, she hadn't given any thought to leaving Pickett mm -hmm. for Memphis. But next we see they're at the train station and they're getting on the steps of the train and waving goodbye to the crowd of Pickett, Arkansas. And as soon as Lonesome, you know, Lonesome is being very friendly, you know, thanks folks, you've been great, all that kind of thing, you know, waving and smiling. As soon as he does a 180 and turns to mount the steps to go into the train, Lonesome says to Marsha, boy, am I glad to shake that dump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is going to be a theme that maybe becomes important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a little, little foreshadowing here. Marsha gives him a hard look. I mean, you know, Pickett is her hometown, plus it's the mm -hmm. town that he, uh, you would expect him to have a measure of gratitude for. But he says he was only kidding. Although, uh, you know, it's, it could be taken as convincing, but, uh, I didn't personally take it as very, <laughs> I think, uh, I think he said what he meant right out of the game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so backstage in Memphis. Lonesome is wiping makeup off his face. He, he doesn't like being made up for the television cameras. And Marsha introduces Mel Miller. This is Walter Matthau looking, uh, younger than I've probably ever seen. Yep. yep. <laughs> and he's, he's going to be Lonesome's writer. Lonesome asks if he's, if he's from some Eastern college and Mel says he went to school in Nashville, it's Vanderbilt 44. So that's how Lonesome's going to refer to him from this point yeah. on. He's Vanderbilt 44. <laughs> Lonesome gets lit on stage and the show starts. The show is still called A Face in the Crowd. Uh, they, they used uh, Marcia's name. And, uh, you know, she's come along as his little, little girl Friday, as he said. He starts off by checking out the cameras and the monitor live on the air. Yeah. He's a... Uh, He's just sort of poking around, finding out uh, how the land lies and letting the audience uh, enjoy, which, um, you know, the people, the people who are doing the filming and the directing, they don't seem so happy about it. But, uh, but again, it's one of those things where it's probably playing real well with the audience at all. Well, and, and before this, right, as it was starting, one of the producers like shoved a piece of straw in his mouth so that. You know, he would look like a, you know, old Yoko or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And he clearly was uncomfortable with that. And, and I think his whole thing, again, especially when that happened, was he needs to control this, right? Yeah. So he starts, like, pointing the camera at the monitor, you know, <laughs> that's <laughs> showing him. And ha and then you can see the people that are producing it in the background and everything. So that upsets them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's got he's to gotta take them down a notch. <laughs> He starts to do a song, but then right away he cuts that off to do more talking. And he starts <laughs> talking about his experience uh, in a hotel room around 10 or so that he could still hear all the noises of Memphis. He talks about how busy Memphis is at night. Uh, then he goes into talking about the wee hours. He says around, around 4 a.m., uh, he says, all you got left then is folks in trouble. Mm -hmm. And he steps off the stage for a moment, which, uh, you know, is to not traditionally good TV stuff. It's kind of dead air. But while he steps off the stage, Marsha and Mel discuss him. And Mel seems to admire his natural talent with words. He's, he's uh, impressed so far. But a very quickly lonesome returns to the stage, and he's leading a woman by the hand. 
And Mel says, a colored woman in Memphis, that takes nerve. <laughs> so this lady and Lonesome, they tell the story of her house burning down with no insurance. And we cut to the living room of a black family watching TV at home, and they're surprised at what they're seeing on TV. They don't, uh, they don't get a whole lot of uh, representation on Memphis television. Mm -hmm. So Lonesome encourages his viewers to send in half a buck. He says no more than a buck, uh, you because know, people need their money for their own things, too. And then next thing you know, Marsha and Steiner burst into Lonesome's hotel room while he's sleeping. Wake him up. He's not real happy about it, but it turns out that money is pouring in for that woman who lost her home. And moreover, Lonesome <laughs> now has a mattress company as a sponsor. <laughs> so back on the set of the show, Mel wheels in a wheelbarrow filled with, uh, I thought they were quarters, but the way they clink when he drops them, uh, I think they're silver dollars. <laughs> Lonesome says, uh, Ain't nothing in this world you can't do when you let the best side of you take over. <laughs> then it's uh, time for him to do his first commercial for the Luffler Mattress Company. And he's very, very irreverent about it. And, uh, you know, from for, for a modern-day sensibility, it's more understandable. You could, uh, you know, there are a lot of companies now that do advertising, but sort of... Uh, poking gentle fun at themselves, so to speak. But back in 1957, that it apparently wasn't a real common thing to do. Uh, <laughs> right. And Mr. Luffler is watching and he doesn't seem happy at all. So then we see Marsha and Steiner and Lonesome all sitting out, uh, uh eating lunch at an out outdoor patio, uh, at a restaurant somewhere, apparently. And Luffler's at another table nearby, but he hasn't talked to them yet. Uh, perhaps pointedly not talking to them. Yep. And Steiner says that Luffler has a contract that gives him a loophole and he can back out at any time and he's giving Lonesome one more chance, but, you know, Lonesome had better not screw it up. As Marsha and Lonesome are leaving the restaurant, a slim guy in a dark suit walks in. He's striding pretty briskly and uh, he greets Lonesome uh, and he's got kind of a glib vibe to him. You know, like, uh, an eager, he's a greasy guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he tells Lonesome, he got him a month of food at the white owl for an on air, on air plug that, uh, Lonesome dropped into the show that morning. And this fellow refers to this kind of a quid pro quo as schlockmeistering. <laughs> and it's funny because this became known as payola, right? Which yeah. became illegal. Uh, and people would actually go to jail for this sort of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Lonesome introduces him to Marsha as a Joey De Palma. He's Luffler's office boy. On the show, Lonesome's doing another commercial. And once again, uh, he's irreverent, but the audience seems to love it. Lonesome improvises a song about his impending loss of Luffler's patronage. And then he segues that into Free Man in the Morning. Give me an E! Well, goodbye, Mr. Luffler, and thanks for the ride. I like to have your money, but I'd rather have my pride. On these corny old commercials, we just cannot agree. So you can tell up my contract maker, free man of me, gon' be a...
Get me my lawyer. <laughs> we see uh, we see Luffler in his office telling his secretary to get his lawyer. <laughs> so the uh, lonesome lonesome is really uh, really twisting the knife a little bit here, mm-hmm. seeing what he can get away with. Next thing we see is Lonesome walking down the ho- hotel hallway. He's got his suitcase and his guitar. It looks like he's ready to travel. He passes by a door, and then he turns back to it. It's Marsha's door. He knocks and wakes her up. Tells her he's mm-hmm. come to say goodbye. She tries to talk to, talk him into staying, but uh, he's he's not moved. So as he uh, as he starts walking away, Marsha tells him, "Come here." And she kisses him, and he goes into her room. So, yep. not uh, not perhaps uh, one of the great choices she's made in her life. <laughs> but she seems kind of lonely. I mean, she oh, doesn't yeah. really have anybody else. Yeah, so. I mean, uh, you can't uh, can't can't expect people to always behave rationally. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day, outside Leffler's offices. People stuff a rolled-up mattress into a wireframe trash basket as Joey's watching from the doorway of the offices. The crowd sets it on fire, <laughs> burning uh, burning Luffler in effigy, I guess. And uh, some of them have placards about keeping Lonesome on television. They're really, uh, really, really motivated by uh, hmm. Mr. Luffler's cruelty. <laughs> Julie goes into a room in the building where Luffler's meeting with his advisors. One of them mentions that sales are up 55%, which is uh, pretty substantial. Mm -hmm. Uh, As soon as Julie leaves the meeting, he has a secretary call a New York advertising agency. We see an office at the ad agency where a few men are sitting around a desk while another stands off to the side holding what looks like a two or three gallon jar of aspirin. It's labeled Vitajex. So Joey gives his spiel over the phone. The advertising guy checks his papers and uh, sees that Lonesome's show beat two networks in the Memphis market, which uh, was fairly impressive. Mm -hmm. There's also an assistant standing around, and she says she's caught the show when she was on vacation, and Lonesome is a living doll. That's a powerful testimonial there. In the hotel, we see Mel walking down the hallway towards Marsh's room. Uh, Lonesome's suitcase is still sitting there, standing right in the hall where he set it down. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mel knocks on Marsh's door, but there's no response. But he notices the suitcase there, and he thinks about it for a moment. Joey comes around the corner, full of pep. He's looking for Lonesome. Mel says he may be in Marsh's room. So Joey smacks on the door and calls for Lonesome until he finally comes to the door. Joey says he's sold the show to the big time. Which is interesting because it's not like he had an agreement with Lonesome or anything. He just went off and did this. Yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> Took the initiative. So, uh, Rhodes lets him in and Joey says the agency wants him for the Vitajex hour at 8 PM coast to coast. And, uh, Joey offers to be Lonesome's New York agent and Lonesome accepts. <laughs> and, uh, as Lonesome sings and dances around the room, Joey pulls out some papers and asks him to sign. 
and mm. uh, Lonesome enthusiastically does so. And this is this is one point where Lonesome doesn't quite have the head for business that uh, mm. he does in some other scenes. Yeah, it could come back to haunt him a little <laughs> bit. Let's see. <laughs> yeah. So we see a crowded office at the advertising agency. And, uh, there's a man sitting at the desk. He's sort of leading the whole discussion. Uh, this man's name will turn out to be Macy. He explains that they spent over $300,000 of general Hainsworth's money to make this country Vita Jack's conscious and three in, in, in 1957 or eight, you know, yeah, I was going to say 300,000. I mean, that's unimaginable amount of money. Oh, that's mil millions in today's yeah. currency. Yeah. But the sales have dropped instead of going up. And, uh, they have a doctor who did, who did some analysis on Vitajex and, and he takes a moment <laughs> to explain that it's just aspirin, caffeine, and sugar. One thing I have to say about this whole scene that I find really funny is that, um, realize that they have kind of the early version of PowerPoint, right? Which is <laughs> that they'll have a woman standing in an easel and they have these, you know, pieces of cardboard on the easel with pictures on them. And then. As the person's talking, she's moving the next picture to the front or the next picture to the back, whatever. So, so that, you know, so PowerPoint is not new. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and when this doctor talks about Vitajex, he has, you know, this pie chart of what percentage of it is sugar, <laughs> what percentage of it is, you know, it reminds me of the old, um, in the old days, like in the West, most of those cure all medicines it was just all alcohol right it was just a way to drink <laughs> some alcohol before you went to bed <laughs> oh yeah although yeah. some of them had uh some of them had uh marijuana some of them had cocaine yeah. coca-cola used to have cocaine <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah heroin various stuff you know you, you could always find fun stuff in the old west <laughs> <laughs> so the doctor says uh general or no general we have nothing to sell he does concede that at least it's relatively harmless like a lot of the old patent medicines he says and it struck me i didn't catch this in the first viewing but uh since lonesome is going to be selling this thing that's basically just a patent medicine he's more or less following in his father's footsteps as a spieler you know yeah good point good point point. and wait you know with his uh romantic habits he's also following in his mother's footsteps <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Macy says that with all due respect to the television department, he'd like to see something more dignified, maybe the Ed Murrow show. <laughs> but the assistant just then comes in and says, Mr. Rhodes is here. And Macy seems unsettled. He, uh, he takes a couple pills with water. We'll, we'll find out that this is actually nitroglycerin pills for his heart condition. <laughs> the television guys say they invited Rhodes so that Macy could see why they're sold on him. Joey enters, followed by Lonesome and Marsha. Lonesome greets everyone, and he pours some Vitajex pills into his hand, and he says they look pale. He suggests making them yellow. That's the color of sunlight and energy, he said. Mm -hmm. So then he chews up a few Vitajex. Probably the sugar makes them chewable, I guess. <laughs> and uh, he says, hoo-wee, I am ready. <laughs> and... Um, he chases a couple of pretty secretaries around the room to dramatize the effects of Vitajex. Yeah, what they never say here, but it's clear, is that his idea is to make this seem like Viagra, right? Right. <laughs> which, 
And also, since Viagra is rather close to Vitajex, it's kind of funny that they sort of <laughs> predicted the name there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, he's, going to, uh, he's going to imply that it's something to restore, restore your manly vigor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he somehow knows about Macy's plan for a more dignified selling approach. Uh, perhaps he heard it when he was standing out in the hallway. But he says, back where I come from, the fellow looks too dignified. We figure he's looking to steal your watch. <laughs> so he starts to improvise a Vitajex jingle. And uh, all of a sudden, it, we get a transition to him playing his guitar and television. And we just hear uh, a few bars of that. And then his bluesy music switches to 50s-style rock and roll with saxophones. Oh! Contains 97 units of energy giving endrocaine. <laughs> That's why Vitajex gives you that get up and go. Do you have trouble with your girl? Does she look elsewhere? And this is the beginning of a, of a montage. And that's, uh, that's got quite a lot of fun stuff in it. We've got three women singing while they dance on a dais that's shaped like a Vitajex pill. Yeah, Pretty scantily clad. Yeah, there's even a little bit of <laughs> camel toe showing there. <laughs> we see a uh, lonesome at first. You know, it looks like this. This is right after that transition to the uh, to the rock and roll remix of his song, and it looks like he might be a little put off by it. It turns out that he's actually doing a before shot. He's the uh, He's the depressed guy who hasn't yet take, taken Vitajex. Mm. So we see a woman's hand pop a pill into his mouth. And then we see a cartoon cross section, which was something they actually had <laughs> in the 50s and 60s television yeah. commercials. You, know, you see the pills journey from the mouth to the stomach. And then we see Lonesome looking energetic and laughing. And the studio audience is applauding. Then we hear a narrator say, keep your eye on that rating. And we see a big, uh, a big oversized thermometer gradually rising. Yeah. I just don't quite. Un- so it's liquid in a tube, like a thermometer. So I, I don't quite understand the mechanism here where when your ratings go up, the thermometer goes up. I think, I think it's just supposed to be symbolic of the heat level rising for Vitajex. It's uh, <laughs> becoming a hot property, I guess. I also just wanted to insert in my own defense that I totally did not notice any camel toe like thing <laughs> and would have been too refined to mention no, it myself. Yeah, well, I, uh, yeah I'm, I'm here to do the deep analysis. <laughs> okay, I think it's time to move on. <laughs> so we also see a sales chart, you know, it's a line chart uh, that had been going down for Vitajex sales and now it's going up and it's, we get a little stop motion animation where the line goes up a little, then up some more, then up some more, uh, until it actually goes through the boundary line at the top of the chart. 
And we see the doctor who had analyzed Vita Jax in the meeting and had uh, rather unkind things to say about it. Now he's dressed up as a guy selling products as a doctor on TV. And he's telling us that each pill contains 97 units of energy-giving endrocaine, which is <laughs> apparently caffeine, sugar, and aspirin. Yep. Um, and uh, and while this is all going on, this is still in the montage, and we, we're still hearing that Vitajex tune in the background. And we get a shot of Lonesome's mouth doing his trademark laugh. It's kind of uh, mm. mildly, mildly sinister. <laughs> yeah, because it's not, I mean, yeah, it's not a laugh in a in any kind of humorous way. I mean, it's a mocking mm-hmm. laugh, right? Yeah. You know. <laughs> and then uh, the montage continues. There's a, there's a cartoon about Vitapig, and this is the old Charles Atlas style, you know, 98-pound weakling on a beach <laughs> thing. Yeah. And Vitapig. <laughs> and once again, not very subtle about the uh, Viagra aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he takes some Vitajex and he goes from a beach weakling to a he-man. And he immediately uh, wins the affections of the lady pig. <laughs> and we see uh, General Hainsworth make a call to someone to say that he just saw Rhodes and he likes him. And then we see a girl lying in bed, still part of the montage. Uh, <laughs> part of a commercial, she's lying in bed. She's got uh, this sort of white satin... I don't know if it'd be a nightgown, negligee, something like that. No, she's dressed up for bedtime anyway. And on the nightstand next to her is that giant jar that we saw earlier, two or three gallon jar. And she says, I bought my boyfriend a 10 year supply. <laughs> yeah. So again, they're not, they're, they're not saying it, but they're really not leaving anything to the imagination. <laughs> yeah. And then we see a few shots of various, uh, guests on uh on lonesome's show and some of them the narrator says they're doing the soft sell and then he says now for the hard sell and there's a guy shooting pistols in the air we get another another one of lonesome's laughs uh and that ends up the montage it's a it's a fun I, little montage it it is but i i will say directorially i think maybe the one criticism almost that i would have of the film is that there's no other point where we have a narrator so it can be confusing. Is the narrator talking to us, the film audience, or which is, I think, the case? But while you're watching it, it can be like, wait, is he narrating something else? Like, what? Yeah, where, is what it, is this? Is yeah. it a clip of narration from the show itself? Or yeah, yeah, it, it is a little ambiguous. But I, uh, I think overall, it's still uh, still pretty well done. Mm-hmm. Good kick. And it's funny because I mean they have to use these montages because they have so much story, and it's already an over two hour film. Mm-hmm. And so they use montages probably four or five times to just compress a whole bunch of information into a few seconds. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So next we see the backyard of General Hainsworth's luxurious estate. This is one of those estates like uh like in the Great Gatsby where he's got a he's got a backyard with a dock that's right on the water. <laughs> Boats can pull right up to it and all that. Macy is there, and he's telling Hainsworth that Lonesome is a risk. Lonesome Joey and Marsha arrive as Hainsworth is watching a boat pull up to the dock. Hainsworth mentions that good old Macy has had one heart attack, and he's afraid Lonesome is winding him up to another one. And this boat that's newly arrived, a man gets off it, and it's Senator Fuller, 
Now he, he says hello and goes right into the house to freshen up. Marsha mentions that, uh, she's heard him called the last of the isolationists. She says it like it's a bad thing. So he's, uh, being set up as one of the bad guys, as is Hainsworth himself. It's kind of funny because, you know, the, this movie, like most Hollywood movies is trying to make, uh, is, is looking down on conservative viewpoints. And at that point, you know, isolationism is just one of those things that goes back and forth between the parties, right? Oh, so yeah. at that point, it might have been a conservative who's an isolationist, where later it would be liberal, you know. But so it's, it's kind of a little point in time. You know? Oh, yeah. 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 And, uh, and it, you know, Eli Kazan, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but the director. Ilya. Ilya. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We know that he was a guy who was fairly mm. on the left, uh, not not as far to the left as some some of the folks in Hollywood were, but uh, you know he he still had his own uh, message to get across. So the bad mm. guys in this are going to be the right wingers. So that's what we get. Hainsworth tells Lonesome that he'd like to take him under his wing and educate him, and he speculates that Lonesome could be a wielder of opinion, even an institution. And then Hainsworth starts to get a little extra sinister. He says, uh, in all societies from Egypt on, he says, the mass has to be guided with a strong hand by a responsible elite. Mm-hmm. And of course, Hainsworth wants to be part of that elite. <laughs> <laughs> Hainsworth mentions trying to get lonesome on the cover of Life magazine. And right after he mentions that, we see it. Slight magazine with lonesome on the cover and then look <laughs> magazine. And then there's a big ad for him telling his story to the newspaper on the side of a newspaper truck. I would say some of those high end magazines at that time had much better designs than we have now, you know, or, mm-hmm. or in years of magazines were a big deal because it would just be like a big, interesting picture of the person who's the main person in the magazine, like in this case, lonesome, you know, and made, and one little name for the article or the person it wasn't like today if you go into the grocery store and look at the magazines there's 20 different things on the cover and you know etc so i i'm i much more liked how it was done then at least at least in those higher end magazines oh yeah yeah they look very uh very straightforward and tasteful <laughs> and this is the beginning of another little montage this is this is um lonesome's before we had Lonesome selling Vitajects, now this is sort of Lonesome's rise to uh, becoming a semi-institution. <laughs> it happens fast. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, he's, he's on the side of a newspaper truck. Then we see a lady from a botanical lab giving him a sample of the Lonesome Roads Iris. <laughs> and then he, he christens the USS Rhodes. Now, on the first viewing, I thought this was a military ship, and it didn't make sense. But I think this is just some some privately owned ship, maybe a cruise ship or something like that. Yeah, but when I first saw it, I just assumed it was the typical, you know, he's doing the send-off where he throws the bottle of champagne at it and all that. I didn't realize they'd actually named it after him. So. <laughs> yeah. And then we go even further. <laughs> uh, yeah, then he's somewhere snowy, perhaps, uh, perhaps Alaska. Or, uh, uh, I'm not sure that it was Alaska might not have even been a state back. But, uh, anyway, <laughs> he's somewhere snowy, and he's on hand to see a mountain named Mount Rhodes in his honor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That's, um, yeah, it's, it, you'd think by 1957, it'd be pretty hard to find an unnamed mountain. To... Yeah. <laughs> but he's got a mountain named after him now. So, you know, maybe, maybe people are going to have to undo some things down the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Then we see on a television show, this is, you know, continuing the little new montage here, a, a television show called You Lived It, which is very obviously based on This Is Your Life. And Beanie is the guest who's brought on to re-enter Lonesome's life. And one thing I will say, I think the one piece of humanity we see in Lonesome and all this is he really is happy to see Beanie again. Yeah. And I think that's sincere. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And he does, he keeps him around and he seems to, seems to rely on him, uh, about as much as he relies on Marsha. Yeah. So, uh, Beanie must've done something right. And, uh, when Beanie's about to reveal himself on this television show, he makes these donkey noises that, yeah. I can't do it, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, these are noises that he had made back in the picket jail too. I mean, it struck me as funny. The only reason I'm mentioning it is because the closed cap closed captioning, uh, says that he's beatboxing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I think there may be a little generation gap type thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then we see lonesome, uh, hosting a telethon for crippled children, kind of Jerry Lewis style. He mentions that he's been up for 17 hours. Uh, mm -hmm. he's, uh, but, uh, he seems to really be, uh, really be he, selling it. But he has the kid in the wheelchair, um, has this huge Vita Jack sign he's holding. And then the kids, can I put the sign down now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then to, to wrap up this montage, uh, we see Lonesome gets a gold key to the top two floors of the Sherry Towers, which is New York's finest hotel. Interesting question here. I mean, are they donating that to him? You know, because when you give him a gold key, I don't know. It just, I would, it was kind of weird if, uh, they're like, Hey, why don't you take these? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems like a pretty expensive proposition just to give it to him gratis, but, uh, <laughs> But see, I, I, I figure this just must be the career path. You know, you become a mm -hmm. successful communicator. You, you get your podcast going for a year or two, then you move into a fancy apartment somewhere in the big city. Newcomer. <laughs> 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 so anyway, Lonesome calls Marsha from his penthouse in the evening, and he says that he's lonely, but he has to hold the mouthpiece of the phone to his chest for a moment. <laughs> To muffle the sound of a girl leaving the apartment. Yeah, he, he didn't exactly wait long to get lonely. <laughs> <laughs> he says that if Marsha doesn't come, uh, he'll dive off the balcony. Though soon enough, she enters the penthouse. Lonesome calls her out to the balcony, but, but she doesn't go out there just yet because she sees the evidence that he's been drinking with someone else. And he admits that he had a girl over, but he says... When it's over, he feels even more lonely. He seems to be getting real, so to speak. But uh, then again, it, being him being who he is, it could just be part of an act. Or it yeah. could be both things at once. It could be an act that he partly believes in. Uh, he says he's becoming scared of his influence, and he's afraid of being used by people like, uh, like the general. He says he needs Marsha because she levels with him. 
and he asks her to marry him. Uh, she looks very ambivalent about this. She gets up close to him and she says, don't play with me. Don't hurt me. Yeah. But, uh, but she does seem to be considering it uh, seriously. Well, and you can tell his pull because she is a responsible, sober person. And yet she can't, you know, at the end of the day, she can't say no to him. Yeah. Yeah. She, she likes the bad boys, I guess. <laughs> Not unheard of. So the next day, she's still in the penthouse there. She's watching Lonesome's show, and his singers are singing a sentimental kind of saccharine song about an old-fashioned marriage. An old-fashioned marriage is my kind of marriage. Beanie says there's a lady here to see her. She doesn't want to see anyone not in Lonesome's place. And Beanie goes to send this lady away, but she barges in. She looks around at the penthouse. She's obviously impressed. She says, I am Mrs. Rhodes. Mm -hmm. It turns out she's Lonesome's wife. Uh, she says, I hope you have better luck keeping him lonesome than I did. <laughs> Marsha says that she and Lonesome just have a business relationship, but Mrs. Rhodes, uh, she doesn't believe that for a moment. She is a relative mm -hmm. who works on the show, and that's the person who told her where she could find Marsha. So she knows what's what. Yep. Mrs. Rhodes has an ultimatum. Lonesome's going to give her three grand a month or she won't grant him a divorce. And moreover, she'll cause trouble by talking to a magazine. She's got one that's already interesting. Yep. And an interesting little side thing, it's played as a side thing and, um, you know, it, it's probably deliberately understated just for, uh, not, uh, you know, some directorial purpose, but she says she caught lonesome with one of her friends and they, and he broke her jaw and both Mrs. Rhodes and Marsha seem to sort of brush this off. They, this just sort of mentioned in passing. They don't seem to regard well, it as it, a big deal. Marsha even makes a joke about it. It's like, yeah. oh, your jaw certainly doesn't seem broken today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it's an, it's an interesting thing because if, you know, assuming that Mrs. Rhodes is telling the truth, that's a, that's not a trivial bit of misbehavior right. there. Well, right. That's a, like one of the challenges with watching the honeymooners today. Right. Cause one of the big bits for Jackie Gleason was, uh, one of these days and I'm going to, you know, what? punch you and you're going to go to the moon or whatever. And, so you know, to the moon, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it's funny <laughs> the way he presents it, but yeah. then you think about what he's saying, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, although I think yeah. in that case, it's sort of implied that it's completely an empty threat, <laughs> but you never know. There's probably a lot of things we didn't see in that. <laughs> anyway, Mrs. Rhodes, uh, she goes and leaves. As she leaves, she sings a phrase of the old-fashioned marriage song, uh, which is still playing on the on the TV. Uh, she says, uh, with perhaps a hint of sarcasm, she says, <laughs> it's a sincere type song, should be a big hit. <laughs> and that's the end of the first half of them. And we've, uh, we've almost taken as much time to talk about it. As Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, as so as we'll it. see, uh, hopefully we can go. A bit shorter in the second half, but, uh, but you know, this is, this is a lot of stuff. So next in the penthouse, there are some men rehearsing a new theme song called just plain folks. 
You know, I'm not clear if they're changing the name of the show from a face in the crowd, but it's a pretty catchy little theme song there. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't like to hear the whole song. Friendly greeting, Sunday go to meet. Just plain folks, Bible reading, pork chop feeding. Just plain folks, stew on the table, mule in the stable. <laughs> and there's a full buffet table with lots of champagne available. And Marsha pours herself some. And I think we start to see here that from here on out in the movie, she's clearly getting more and more into her drinks and mm -hmm. smoking and stuff. And this is kind of the beginning of that. Yeah. And you wouldn't be surprised if it's not her first glass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Joey comes in with the general and Beanie and Lonesome. And Lonesome runs over to this machine that they want to demonstrate to the general. <laughs> it's a... Uh, a machine that he designed that automates audience response, such as laughter and oohs and ahs, so you can just sort of get anything you want. Kind of funny because he really doesn't need it for his show. I mean, he's got the audience <laughs> in the palm of his hand. Yeah, that's fair. I think from a writing perspective, you know, they're going to use this later, so they just had to get it yeah, in yeah. somewhere. And kind of related to that, Marsha here is a bit on the nose, and this is true with a few things she says going forward, where... You know, she just says the text, right? She says, uh -huh. mechanical laughter, mechanical applause. What are we coming to? <laughs> and the reason I say it's on the nose is they could have left that line out and we would have, you know, been able to figure it out. Yeah, I, I think that's called hanging a lampshade on it. Yeah. And the general then runs off to a lunch date with Senator Fuller. And we're going to hear much more about the senator <laughs> going forward. <laughs> And meanwhile, Lonesome asks Marsha what's up with her because she seems to be kind of, you know, not herself today. And it turns out she's a little bit upset about him not getting unmarried before proposing to her. <laughs> and he's like, oh, it's not a problem. I got divorced in Mexico in Juarez. But then, you know, the judge got convicted for, you know, fraud. So we got to work that out. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if that's how things work because I, I think... I mean, you know, if you had judges who got in trouble for something and that ended up reversing a whole bunch of their previous decisions. <laughs> like, like a divorce, right? Oh, you're yeah. no longer divorced because this judge was corrupt. <laughs> <I'm> like, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, we, you know, we have no idea how much he's lying here, right? It, yeah, it, it, yeah. There's, yeah. There's no reason to assume that he's telling the truth at all to start with. <laughs> right. Uh, and meanwhile, while they're having this, you know, very intense conversation, an assistant hands Lonesome the latest ratings and he reads to him immediately and he's really excited. He's up to 44 versus the other guy who's at 19.5 and says, boy, that other fellow is going to be jumping out a window. <laughs> <laughs> sort of at least a foreshadowing of themes to come. Yeah. And then he, uh, re he, kind of, he, you know, returns his attention to Marsha and says, look, his lawyer is dealing with the divorce stuff. And just to make her feel better, after he judges a cheerleading contest in Arizona this weekend, he's going to go straight to Mexico to Juarez and he'll, and he'll finish up the divorce and fix it all up. He says, the next time you hear from me, it'll be from Juarez. Believe me. <laughs> or don't. <laughs> I think, uh, I, I think I may have seen this twist, uh, coming before it actually got here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. I didn't, didn't quite realize where it was going to go here. But, yeah. So now we see Marsha going into the writer's room which apparently is also in the penthouse, but it's, it's hidden away and it's not something that they showed the general. 
and Mel is there and he calls it the leper's ream. So, you know, it's one of these cases where Lonesome doesn't want anyone to know that he has writers. Mm -hmm. He wants everyone to think everything he says is spontaneous. And a lot of it is spontaneous, oh, but, yeah. you know, and, uh, there's a couple of men playing darts and they're using Lonesome's picture as a target. <laughs> So it tells you how they feel about him. Yeah, it also tells you how often he visits their room. <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. And Marsha says to Mel, why don't you quit? And Mel says to Marsha, why don't you quit? <laughs> and then we're in Arizona, and there's a huge local audience. And I call them the cheerleaders, but they only refer them to them as majorettes. And this yeah. makes me think that maybe the term cheerleader didn't exist well, at that time. I, I think... Uh, with the baton twirling, I think a majorette is something distinct from a cheerleader. Similar, mm -hmm. but distinct, I think. Okay. And so they all march into a pattern that spells out, we love LR, you know, <laughs> Lonesome Roads. And boy, he's excited about all this. He loves having, you know, hundreds of nubile young women, you know, marching around no, in sure. extremely short skirts. I wouldn't call them skirts, right? I mean, there's not a lot left to the imagination. Yeah. Here. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of surprising, you know, uh, the way that fifties culture is presented to yeah. us now. And you get crotch shots here. I mean, they're not hiding anything. <laughs> and Marsha and Mel are watching all this live on TV from the writer's room. It's actually kind of a live episode of the show. Well, I guess they're all live episodes. So at the time, but yeah, it's an episode of the show that he's going to judge these majorettes and, you know, have a winner of who's the best performer. Again, Lonesome is very excited about all this. And so then the contestants start doing individual baton twirling routines for him to judge. And he's getting really excited about one of the girls in particular, who also seems to be interested in him. You know, she oh, looks yeah, at him they, a lot and everything. They keep shooting these little meaningful glances at each other. Right. <laughs> And the guy who's officiating the event points out to Lonesome that she's only 17. <laughs> and his response is, she looks like a very sweet yeah. child. <laughs> but 17 is probably above the age of consent and pick it anyway. Could be, could be. <laughs> Turns out her name is Betty Lou. And her uh, routine shows her to be very uh, flexible. <laughs> uh, she does some interesting little maneuvers there uh, toward him. And wouldn't you know, Lonesome uh, decides that she was the best performer. <laughs> <laughs> and she then breaks down crying in his arms and she tells him that she'd pasted his picture over her bed. So he's the first thing she sees every morning. <laughs> <laughs> and Marsha and Mel are at the bar and Marsha is drinking again and she gets a telegram. I guess you know, this was basically the, you know, instant message of the time was the telegram. Oh, yeah. And Lonesome was saying he's not going to be getting in tonight because he's going off to Juarez. So great. He's going to take care of that whole divorce thing and they're going to get married. <laughs> and, uh, she tells, Marsha tells Mel about the upcoming marriage and <laughs> Mel says, you know, I could be a gentleman here, but instead I'm going to hope that Lonesome chokes on a Vitagex pill. <laughs> so obviously he's admitting kind of his feelings to her. This probably hasn't been really, um, mysterious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, it's interesting if I remember right, when, uh, when the Juarez comes up, uh, she explains to Mel that it's a place where people go to, uh, get married or end marriages. I think she says it in that order too. So mm. I didn't catch that. It's a good one. Yep. 
And now here's a really tragic thing for Marsha. You know, they're at the airport and she is all dolled up, right? And she's in her, her best dress mm-hmm. as the plane arrives. And there's a huge crowd, mostly girls, and they break free of the cops and rush the plane. Yeah. It's like that Beatlemania thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which hadn't happened yet. So. <laughs> yeah. Elvis um, mania. <laughs> When Lonesome appears on the ramp of the plane, he's with Betty Lou, and he announces to everyone that they just got married in Juarez. <laughs> yeah. And Marsha, of course, is mortified, and she runs away through the crowd. And this is also, talk about explicit and weird, you know, the press crowds into Betty Lou, and they're literally, like, moving her legs and getting, you know, to get her into the positions they want for photos. It's really disturbing. Mm-hmm. And then one of the one of the press guys asks her for her measurements. Yeah. <laughs> and she's clearly a little overwhelmed because she's this kid, right? I mean, running into all this. Oh, yeah. And now we're on stage for the show and wedding music is being played. And Lonesome and Betty Lou walk through two rows of majorettes who are forming a path and they're connecting their batons to, you know, overhead to make the path. Yeah. And Betty Lou has a really long wedding dress train and, you know, Lonesome unusually is in a tux because he's usually in sort of, you know, farmer clothes or something. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of a button up shirt, you know, cowboy attire. (laughs) And Marsha is watching this from home in bed and she's crying. And the crowd of girls rushes the stage. And then, again, really disturbing, because so Betty Lou is in this very fancy wedding dress, right, with this huge train, and these kids are, you know, mm-hmm. holding the train as she walks along. And then Lonesome sort of turns it into a strip show. <laughs> <laughs> he says, oh, you know, here's the first thing I noticed uh, about Betty Lou. And then she, like, takes off the top, and she's got this little, you know, bikini underneath. Yeah. And basically, as he talks, she keeps taking off more of it until she's dressed down from the elegant, uh, you know, fancy wedding thing to a very, very risque uh, outfit. And then she does a routine with her baton. And now we get, you know, one of these dark points that are in the last half of the movie, that TV marketing exec, you know, who we've seen earlier. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Macy. Macy. was Macy, yep. He has to talk to Lonesome while the routine is going on. He just found out that his marketing firm is losing the general and Vitajax, and he's desperate because, you know, if he loses his account, he's going to be fired, and he's old, and he can't lose his job. And he literally gets on his knees and begs. And I kind of misinterpreted this because he takes a pill and then falls over, and I thought maybe he'd taken cyanide or something, but Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier... We actually have this pattern of him taking these pills that I guess are for his heart. So I think that I thought he died at this point, but he didn't die because we see him at one point later. So clearly it's just a stress has caused his heart to fail and he falls over. And then we're at Marsha's house and Lonesome is telling her that he was just afraid to marry her. And that's why he married Betty Lou. And Lonesome complains that she and Mel are always snarky about him and they don't approve of him. And Marsha does, again, one of those on-the-nose things. She says, you're getting to be all the things you used to harpoon. Mm -hmm. And Lonesome says, the bigger I get, the smaller you make me feel. And he starts to leave. But then Marsha says she knew that he'd married Betty Lou as a way of not marrying her. And now he does something unusually generous for him because he really does it. It's not a lie. 
Well, he says he's going to give her 10% of his operation and she will never have to lift a finger again. But <laughs> kind of surprisingly, she is not impressed or interested in this deal, right? Says, you're not giving me anything. I created you. I created this show. You know, I named you, <laughs> et cetera. I'm going to be an equal partner and I'm going to get what I deserve. And she's clearly implying she's, you know, willing to do a lawsuit or whatever. And again, we see something unusual here, which is for the only time in the film, we see Lonesome be kind of cowed, right? I mean, he's, and, and he's probably feeling guilty. And so he, he agrees to her terms that she will get half of everything. I, uh, I could be wrong. I think you may be giving him too much credit for feeling guilty. I think it's more likely probably that he's, he's just afraid that she's the key to the show's success and, you know, without her around. uh, That's a good point. And we do see later, I mean, the whole thing relies on her and he, you know, yeah. So, and I guess he does know that. Yeah. And so he now assumes that she's going to get together with Mel, but she says, no, he's gone back to Memphis to forget both of them. (laughs) And I, I think this is a really interesting exchange. Lonesome says, I thought he'd wait for you until there was ice on the equator. And she says, that's how long he did wait. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's a, he's a nice guy, but if he if he doesn't do it for her, then he doesn't do it for her. Mm. <laughs> and now we get a little mini montage <laughs> where Walter Winchell, a real person, is talking about Lonesome and rumors about what he's talking to the general about, which doesn't quite make sense in the, in the moment, but it'll make more sense later. And then we see Mike Wallace asking... Senator Fuller, if he's going to run for president and if it's true that Lonesome is going to be coaching him. And, uh, I think we talked about this with Mora and well, I, historically, I like seeing these old, you know, versions of Mike Wallace and such. I'm really not a fan of putting real news people in movies. It just annoys the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. Usually, but. So now we get a classic smoke filled screening room <laughs> and everyone there is watching a film of Senator Fuller giving a speech and when it's over, it's kind of silent for a while. And then the people in the room give some reluctant, polite applause. You know, clearly nobody was particularly blown away by this speech. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, it's kind of an awkward speech. I mean, his phrasing in it is, uh, not, I mean, he's just not a great orator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Beanie is in the back and he suddenly loudly wakes up. So he <laughs> fell asleep. <laughs> during the speech and Senator Fuller says, I know that what I'm saying about, I think isolationism, right? I know what I'm saying is not what the American people want to hear, but I think I know what's best for them. (laughs) And the general agrees that he knows what's best for them, but he says that Fuller is not connecting with people. And that's why he's brought Lonesome in to help him out. And Lonesome asks Beanie what the ratings for the Senator were on face the people. (laughs) And Beanie says, uh, brutal. Oh, excuse me. 4.2. Uh, you know, Beanie is the one honest and true person in this whole show. Right? <laughs> so the general says Senator Fuller has got to drop his reserved ways and become a backslapper and a baby kisser. <laughs> and he says, uh, again, a bit on the nose, but uh, I'm okay with it. I guess in this case, he says, we've got to find 30 million buyers for the product we call Worthington Fuller. <laughs> And there's a newspaper guy there, presumably someone who runs one of the newspapers, right? Because these are all pretty big, big wigs here. And he is a big supporter of Fuller. His newspaper has always uh, supported Fuller. 
And he says the general is underestimating the overall respect that Fuller has. <laughs> Lonesome turns around and says, I think you underestimate the respect which respect? people... Respect? Did you ever hear of anyone buying any product, beer, hair rinse, tissue, because they respect it? You gotta be love, man. Love! <laughs> gonna be a bit of a theme. Yeah. <laughs> Lonesome believes there's no difference between politics and performing, that politics is just people and performing is influencing people. Yeah. And then we see kind of what he thinks of Beanie. He, he says, you know, and Beanie's just sitting there minding his own business. So I don't think Beanie will mind me saying this. I found him in a jail. He's stupid. <laughs> He's got no mentality. He thinks with his feet, but I trust his feet. <laughs> and if he doesn't laugh, I know something is wrong with yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah, and Beanie's totally fine with all this. And so then Lonesome asked Beanie what he thought about the speech, and he says it was flatter than last night's beer. <laughs> Very good metaphor, I think. <laughs> Lonesome promises the senator a whole new personality. You know, for example, he says, what kind of pet do you have? And the senator has a Siamese cat. Yeah. <laughs> Lonesome says, yeah. You know, he actually asked Beanie, right, what do you think of a cat? And Beanie's like, eh. <laughs> Lonesome says, no, the audience wants dogs. My audience wants dogs. And they need a nickname for you. We're going to call you Curly Fuller because he has this really awkward, you know, comb over yeah. situation. <laughs> he says, look, if we call you Curly, it will be self-deprecating. and You'll be making fun of yourself and, and you know, be a little more human. Yeah. Uh, he says, put yourself in my hands. I'll have a loving you. And then there's this little aside that becomes important later. Joey just happens to mention an aside to the general that lonesome should be in the cabinet <laughs> of the president yeah the way he says it it's it's kind of just like an offhand joke but of course joey probably doesn't mean it just as an offhand joke yeah no he doesn't say anything <laughs> isn't trying to give him an angle <laughs> after everyone else has left it's just the general and lonesome together and the general says that lonesome is the only person who could have convinced the senator to go along with this but he warns lonesome that he's starting to run out of control at times. But interesting thing here, while he's warning him about this, that um, Lonesome is not listening at all. Mm. He is just thinking. He's got this, you know, he's, what can he do next? And how can he make this all work? And then he gets this idea, Cracker Barrel, Lonesome Roads Cracker Barrel. <laughs> it turns out it's an idea for a new show where a bunch of sort of country hicks will sit around Lonesome listening to him sound off about everything happening in the country. And when the general balks at this, Lonesome goes off on him. He says, I'm not just an entertainer. I'm an influence. I'm a force, <laughs> which I'm wondering if he kind of is the first sort of reference to influencer, right? <laughs> which is our modern. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, interesting, interesting speculation. I'd, I, it'd be neat to know. <laughs> there's a, there's a thing called Google Ngram viewer. And it, it sort of works in conjunction with Google books, you know, where they scanned a whole bunch of old books, but you can use this Ngram viewer to basically find out how frequently a phrase or a word was used throughout history and in the books that Google has scanned anyway. So mm -hmm. that's, um, that's kind of a fun thing to play with. So if anybody wants to research the etymology of influencer that's a good resource <laughs> okay and so now we jump to the cracker barrel show which has been put together and uh lonesome is going on about the limeys you know the brits <laughs> and the 
very hick country folk who are all surrounding him. You know, they're there to support him. So one of them like spits into a spittoon and says, that's telling them. And <laughs> another one says, that's the Lawrence truth, right? So they're all there just to kind of say yes. And it kind of shows what, what Lonesome really feels about these people, right? I mean, but, and then Senator Fuller shows up to chew the fat and put his feet up on the stove, right? So they're trying to humanize him. And we see Marsha in the bar. So, you know, <laughs> we had this in nine to five also, right? Always the bar at the bottom of the building that everyone goes into. Mm -hmm. She's in the bar watching the show, but she's different now. She's wearing all black and she's smoking and drinking and there's sort of aristocratic vibes, right? She's, she's kind of sold out basically. And you yeah, can sort of see that. Turn into this. the dark side. <laughs> yep. And Mel walks in and it turns out it's the first time he's been in the bar in a long time, right? Cause he had left. And then Lonesome asks the Senator what he thinks about more and more and more social security being given out. And it turns out the Senator doesn't approve, you know, coddling people weakens the moral fiber. Daniel Boone never needed things like that. And it's clear that Daniel Boone is like something that Lonesome gave him to talk about. Right? Oh yeah. So Mel and Marsha talk in the bar and sort of throughout this conversation, Mel's sort of figuring out that she sold out. He didn't know that when he came in. And it turns out that he's been writing a book about Lonesome called Demagogue and Denim. <laughs> he said he never punched Lonesome like he should have. So now he has the book to punch him. And the publishers think it's the right time to pull the rug out and show what a fraud that Lonesome is. And here we see Marsha struggling with things. She's like, well, I wouldn't say he's a fraud. <laughs> and she sort of defends working with him. She says she's toned him down. She's kept him from saying certain things. She's kept him from firing a lot of people and it's very successful. And they have a side company, like with marketing, doing a hundred million a year, which at that time, I mean, that's freaking huge. Mm -hmm. right? And Mel tells Marsha that she's making it possible for Lonesome to do these things. You know, she's the locker room where he eases up after the fight and he meets her and everything would go off the rails without her. And then he leaves and he, clearly he's disapproving and he's saying, you know, he says, I'll call you again when I think you're ready. <laughs> so, interesting. So then Lonesome, we see him entering his penthouse and he's all excited about a Gallup poll and he's calling for Betty Lou. <laughs> and what we find out is she's been playing patty cake with Joey. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> And Joey's like, look, I know what you've been doing on some of the nights that you haven't been around here. So don't, you know, <laughs> don't tell me. And then Lonesome fires him on the spot, but Joey points out that he, and this comes back to that paperwork he had selling, right? Yeah. Joey owns 51% of the voting stock. So Lonesome is in bed with him and can't get rid of him. <laughs> and then he leaves and Lonesome then calls Beanie on the phone and tells him to take Betty Lou back to Arkansas. And he says to her, she's obviously very upset. And she was about to be on Ed Sullivan's show this week doing her baton routine. And he says to her, you don't own 51% of the stock, so you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he tells her as long as she stays in Arkansas, she'll get her weekly payment. But if she ever leaves, then it's all over. Then we're at Marsha's house and she's sleeping. And Lonesome is banging on the door and yelling. And he says, Lonesome's back. <laughs> and and it's really, you know, really rude. I mean, he comes in like he owns the place. He tells her he's done with the floozy. And then he tells her to make him a drink. <laughs> and he just, yeah, as he's undressing, he's like, well, we'll have to be more careful than we used to be. I have to stay married until I get my new appointment. And it turns out that 
there's a whole plan in place here for the general to get Senator Fuller, once he becomes president, to agree to make a new cabinet post for Lonesome so he can do propaganda for the president as a performer. So he's going to be known as the Secretary for National Morale. <laughs> the plan here is to get Senator Fuller to commit to this after the big banquet tomorrow night where Lonesome is launching Fighters for Fuller. There's like 20 of the biggest men in the country, you know, generals and CEOs and that sort of thing. And they're all going to come and they're all going to, you know, commit to Fuller for president. And Marshall's skeptical about why these people would come to this party. And Lonesome says, Oh, honey, if I ask them, they gotta come. Maybe they'd be afraid not to come. I could murder them like this. So he's demonstrating he can just turn it on and off whenever he wants. Yeah. And that anyone he doesn't like, he can just turn his audience on, you know. Yeah. And now Marsha realized that Mill was right, that, that, you know, he's kind of gone crazy and he's too powerful. And at this moment, he really does have that much power. And he says, this whole country is just like my flock of sheep. And I'm going to be the power behind the president and you'll be the power behind me. You know, and then he gets kind of meek. He's like, you made me. I owe it all to you. I always say that. And then he really wants her to get in bed with him. And I think she struggles with this because she's still, she's lonely. She's attracted to him. But after kind of a mental battle, she suddenly just grabs her house coat and rushes out of the house into the rain. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, it's, it's obvious that Rhodes is, is, you know, all the, everything is going to his head, but, uh, but still as as a precipitating event for uh, Marsha to suddenly realize that fascism is descending upon the United States and uh, that this uh, country club Republican type guy is going to be the next Hitler or something. I don't know. I'm not, I don't completely buy it, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, that's what the movie wants us to go with. So, okay. So next day we see the studio. And Marsha never showed up, so everything is in chaos. Nothing can work if she's not there. So they don't have the commercials prepared. They don't have the content prepared. Just they're not ready at all. And, of course, Lonesome is really mad about all this, and he's yelling at everyone. But he, And he says some, you know, after having just, we've just seen him telling her about how important she is and how she created him, and he'll never forget that, et cetera. He now has some <laughs> not nice things to say about her as a woman. And he tells the crew that he's going to ad-lib the show tonight since they don't have it together. And after the show has started, Marsha shows up in the control room, and then she goes, there's a separate room with the sound guy, and she goes in there. And Lonesome tells the audience that he's going to show them a film of him and the senator duck hunting over the weekend. <laughs> but then the film doesn't play, and he gets really pissed off, and he goes into the control room, and he's yelling at everyone, and he sees Marsha in the separate sound room, and he yells at her through the window. And he says he can't talk to her tonight because of this, this event he has with everyone, but he wants her in his office first thing in the morning. And the sound guy then tells Marsha that he quit today. You know, he can't take it anymore. And Marsha pays attention to how he's working the controls. Nah. And at one point, you know, he turns off Lonesome's mic and he starts a commercial. While Lonesome is on camera but knows he's not mic, he starts saying nasty things about his audience. Yeah, yeah he's starting to... Uh... Well, he's always looked down on them to some degree, but he's, he's being less cautious about expressing it. Yeah. And when the commercial ends, Lonesome closes the show with the family that prays together, stays together. 
And then the sound guy turns off the mics and, you know, goes to the outro music and, and stuff like that. And Lonesome starts saying nasty things again. And the sound guy leaves the room muttering if they ever heard the way that psycho really talks. And Marsha then rushes to the soundboard and turns on the mic. And she not only turns it on, but she, she blocks the whole board with her body so that when the sound guy and someone else come in and try to pull her away, they can't get her off of it. So now the mic is on and everyone can watching TV can hear what Lonesome is saying. And he's doing a whole bunch of insults to his audience. You know what the public's like, a cage full of guinea pigs. Good night, you stupid idiot. (laughs) Good night, you miserable slob. (laughs) There are a lot of trained seals. I toss them a dead fish and they'll flap their flippers. (laughs) And we get a montage that switches between his working class audience watching the show and being offended because he's just really trashing them, right? And also the big wigs who are getting ready to attend his shindig, you know, that's going to give him all this control. They're all shocked. And, you know, the working class people start saying things like, he's a monster and I'm going to call the station. And you see all these people calling the station. And Marsha is crying and he doesn't know what's going on yet. Lonesome. Yeah. So he gets in the elevator and he's at the very top floor, right? It's like 40 or 45 or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, interesting little sequence here. We see the lighted numbers going down as he descends. And we're also seeing this montage of people getting very upset and calling the station, et cetera. This is sort of the opposite of that thermometer we saw. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> And as Mary told us in our discussion with her, you know, this really did happen to a guy, right? But a couple mm-hmm. of years before this or something where he, where he got recorded saying things about the kids on his kid's show and, and then he, everything went to hell. Oh, yeah. By the time he reaches the first floor, his career is over. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it didn't take too long. And again, thinking about Twitter, he may have been the first person to be instantly canceled. <laughs> <laughs> And the funny thing is, uh, so one of the big wigs, you know, from the network calls Joey and he already has his replacement lined up, right? It's the next sort of down home, Will Rogers style guy, except Joey assures him this guy's more pliable, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I got to, I got to give Joey credit. He, uh, he comes across as a real weasel, you know, a real, uh, ruthlessly ambitious type guy, but, uh, but he, he certainly, uh, he certainly seems to have, uh, have his act together as far as being an <laughs> evil weasel type guy. <laughs> yeah. I guess he's, yeah. <laughs> he wins uh, weasel of the year. <laughs> and not only that, practically by the time he's down to the first floor, they're already doing the front page of the newspaper you know, with this uh, story. So it really traveled fast and Mel is around and he goes up into the control room and finds Marsha. Now this doesn't make any real sense, but it's just a dramatic thing, right? There's no real way he would have been able to get in here, but <laughs> he has a good line here. He says, I hear you just wrote the ending to my book. <laughs> yeah, well, he could probably, uh, you know, if he, if he heard about the burgeoning controversy, you know, probably he could just head on over to the building and yeah. get up there. I mean, he's probably, uh, Probably has some means of getting in. People there know him. (laughs) Yeah. So at the shindig or alleged shindig, which is in the penthouse, you know, no one has shown up. So Lonesome is sitting there at this huge table and no one else is there. And he calls Marsha 
and there's all these black servers standing around the table. Right. When he calls Marsha, he's raving to her and he looks to the servants for sort of support that the people still love him. And what he sees is that they're making crazy signals, you know, the little like, you know, and that really pisses him off. And so he raves at the servers and he's saying, I'll get them back again. I'm going to make them love me. And then and this is just, wow, it's really intense. And then he says, you know, you're going to love me. And he grabs one of the servers and starts shaking him and says, say, you're going to love me. And then he hugs another server and then he throws them away. And then he tells them all to get out and he calls them black monkeys. So it's, you know, he's just going literally from second to second. He's just going back and forth. Yeah. Here. So he's, uh, he's not really an unconditional love kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. And then he's really obsessed. He's going to ruin that sound guy, you know, that messed him up. And he tells Marshall on the phone to come over or he's going to jump off the building. And she tells him to go ahead and jump, yeah. <laughs> which is a nice little response. And then Mel tells her she's got to go and talk to him and tell him that she did it. Cause if she doesn't tell him she did it, he's going to blame 20 other guys and mess up their lives. Yeah. Which is a good point. And so Mel and Marsha walk into the penthouse and they hear mechanical applause. <laughs> <laughs> While well, Lonesome is shouting a speech and he's standing on a railing above them. And Beanie is operating the applause machine yeah, for him. So it's a, it's like a classic dictator balcony speech type. Yep. Yeah. He's saying he's going to send his audience after the president, you know, and Lonesome Roads is the people. The people is Lonesome Roads. He's going on and on. And then he starts singing a song and he's just going nuts. And then he sees Marsha and he reaches out to her and he rushes down the stairs and rants at her about how he's going to get his audience back. And then he's going to get that damn sound guy. And now Marsha tells him it was her and this really deflates him. And he tells her and Mel to go. And as they're leaving, he starts ranting about what's going to happen to him. And Mel stops and gives this amazing little speech. Listen, I'm not through yet. You know what's going to happen to me? Suppose I tell you exactly what's going to happen to you. You're going to be back in television. Only it won't be quite the same as it was before. There'll be a reasonable cooling off period. And then somebody will say, why don't we try them again in an inexpensive format? People's memories aren't too long. And you know, in a way, he'll be right. Some of the people forget and some of them won't. Oh, you'll have a show. Maybe not the best hour or in the top 10, maybe not even in the top 35. But you'll have a show. It just won't be quite the same as it was before. And a couple of new fellas will come along and pretty soon a lot of your fans will be flocking around them. And then one day somebody will ask, whatever happened to, uh, what's his name? You know, the one who was so big. The number one fella a couple of years ago. He was famous. How can we forget a name like that? Oh, by the way, have you seen uh, Barry Mills? I think he's the greatest thing since Will Rogers. You know, there's um, there's a movie called The Cane Mutiny that has a very similar type of speech at the end, which I won't spoil. It probably would be a good one for us to do one of these days. But, okay. but anyway, in The Cane Mutiny, this this little speech kind of reminded me of the speech at the end of uh, at the end of The Cane Mutiny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then Mel tells Beanie to turn on the applause, and <laughs> he leaves with Marcia. <laughs> 
And, uh, when they reach the street, you know, Lonesome is at the very top of this building, but he's yelling outside the window for her to come back. And Mel says, oh, I don't think he's going to commit suicide. And they drive off as Lonesome begs her from the penthouse not to leave him. And it's the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Lonesome Rhodes, uh, disrespected his audience a little too much, I guess. Yep. <laughs> and so he, he embodied his name. <laughs> so, uh, and with that, we will return to our discussion with Mora. Okay, so guy, what did, what did you think? Uh, did this meet, you know, was this what you expected? Was it different? I definitely enjoyed it. I didn't really know a lot of what to expect. I knew that it involved Andy Griffith in a, un, <laughs> in an un Andy Griffith style role. Uh, but beyond that, I didn't know a whole lot. You know, I, uh, uh I think when we talked, uh, last time I mentioned it as a film where I, I was under the impression that he was the bad guy and, uh, more, uh, said, you know, corrected me and, and said something to the effect that that might be too, you know, cut and dried a reading of it. And I think, uh, I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. He's. Uh, he's, he's certainly in many respects, not an admirable man, but, uh, uh, he's not really a super villain either, except, you know, that he does have this crazy power to, uh, win people over, mm. but, uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. But, For me, I was, I, I was actually surprised at the execution in that I was expecting maybe a more awkwardly acted film, you know, sort of earlier film acting and you know, making speeches or whatever. And I, I thought it's really quite modern in that sense. And, and he did, Andy Griffith did an amazing job with that character mm -hmm. and everyone, there's not really anyone in the film who, who doesn't, you know, really deliver in a way that would be fully watchable today. And at first I was feeling like, and I, and I do still feel like maybe it's a little bit long, but part of that is, that, you know, they really do give you the full journey of this guy. Right. So, mm -hmm. so you're seeing the whole thing. And if anything, it could almost have been a bit longer. Cause I think my one criticism would be they go kind of quickly into the real, the end where he sort of really goes nuts and, and everything. And, and it felt mm. that part felt a little bit forced to me. Right. But I would say mm. overall, like compared to network, I actually would probably prefer this film. Cause I feel like it's more believable where network is a little more and intentionally, of course, right. It's out there. Right. And, mm. and where these characters, I think, are very, very believable. It's interesting because I keep coming across people referring to it as a satire. This yeah. film, Network, mm -hmm. is definitely a satire. <laughs> um, and uh, But this one, it feels to me, I don't understand why they're calling it a satire. But I, I agree with you about the acting. And, of course, Kazan, like Sidney Lumet, was really, you know, considered one of the great actors, directors, and he ha was one of the founding teachers at the at the Actors Studio, and really produced. People hold him responsible for bringing both James Dean and Marlon Brando into the public, you know, into mm -hmm. the prominence. Mm -hmm. The acting style. It's also part of what was fun about comparing it to the Capra film in my old course was talking about the acting style and so forth. Yeah. So contemporary. And I, I meant to actually bring this up earlier. Um, it, I'm curious your thoughts on this since you wrote a biography of, of Sidney Lumet. It feels to me like there's just a lot of overlap between these two. You know, they do sort of 
realistic acting in many cases. They cover these social things. You know, I would almost say this film to me is almost like a prequel to Network, right? I mean, Network almost starts <laughs> at the energy level that this ends at, right? I don't know. What are your thoughts about that, of the two directors? Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought I have thought about it a lot. I mean, <laughs> one of Sydney's assistant directors worked with both of them. And it was really fun to hear his observations about them. But I actually think, you know, Sidney Lumet did some great adaptations of Tennessee Williams, which Kazan also did, you know. Both of them had a connection to Broadway. There's a lot of similarities, but I, I don't see Kazan so much, with the exception of his first Hollywood film, Gentleman's Agreement, which is quite anodyne and this film as being really a social problem mm. director very much. He did a film called Pinky, which is about uh, passing, which also has some, you know, real political content. But he's not super, I mean, to me on the waterfront, well, I, I, I guess I don't really see it in the same, you know, kind of mm -hmm. um, genre as, as Lumet's, but I, but I can see why one would. Mm -hmm. Lumet often asked people about Kazan who had worked with him. He was curious about him, but I couldn't find anybody who could tell me that Kazan asked about Lumet. <laughs> so that was interesting. <laughs> I think that he wanted to know what he was, you know, what he, how he was exactly getting these performances out. And what I learned was, you know, in a way, you know, Kazan was known for sort of doing a little bit of manipulative psycho you know, playing with the psyches of his actors to get them mm. into a certain headspace. And Lumet didn't really, he didn't really like the idea of doing that. He liked the idea of helping them find the character and rehearsing and working on the psychology and motivations and all those things, but didn't like the idea of... So um, there's stories about Andy Griffith, and notably, this was his first full, you know, mm. his first movie, and he never played a dark character again he was always like and he had been a sort of a comic he'd been sort of mm. played he was known on broadway as in a comic role and he did stand-up comedy too he did a record oh. of humorous stories and he you know the story uh, patricia neal says that he in fact almost ruined his marriage while he was working on this film that he really became hey. lonesome roads mm. and as he put it himself i wasn't a very nice person while he was wow. working on this, and that th there are some interesting little moments he describes about what Kazan told him to do in particular scenes. Should I share those? Oh, um, sure. So one was um, the scene where Patricia Neal and uh, and her uncle catch up with him on the road and ask him, you know, to come and work at the radio, mm. and um, he doesn't want to do it, and. Um, Kazan took him aside and said, you don't want to work, you don't want a job, but look at her. Look at Patricia Neal. Is there anything else you'd like to do with her? <laughs> and said to him, just if you think it and feel it, the camera will think it and feel it. Mm -hmm. And so he, you know, you see this sort of lascivious look come into his eyes as he's, you know, talking to her. Mm. And then later on, he gave him even more explicit suggestion when um, Lee Remick <laughs> is making eyes at him at the first scene of the, uh, you know, majorettes and, mm. and um, 
Kazan actually said, fuck her <laughs> with your eyes. <laughs> well, that was there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that's, yeah. I read, I read something. Um, I think I just read it today, actually, or maybe last night. I did a little bit of reading about the movie just to make sure I had some grasp of <laughs> grasp of it all. And uh, one of the things that, well, this is I, I, this is hearsay, I guess, something I read on the internet. So take it for what it's worth. But uh, it said that Andy Griffith had revealed to Kazan that he was, uh, you know, he was he was a little ashamed of his background, you know, uh, yeah. and so when when Kazan wanted him to do a scene and get angry about it, he'd just kind of whisper to him before the scene. Uh, he'd say white trash and that would, uh, that would fire a spark in him. That's, yeah. That was what I read anyway. Wow. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Yeah. That would go with, uh, messing with people's minds kind of thing. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Going by his Wikipedia entry, they say he actually did do a number of dark characters, but it looks like it was all on TV. Um, mm -hmm. he did a number of TV movies and things where he, where he played some surprisingly, uh, bad characters. Now where I, what the one I'm familiar with is, um, one of his last films, Waitress, he plays kind of a lecherous, first oh. of all, he's a very nice Andy Griffith guy, but then he turns out to have a rather kind of humorously lecherous side, especially it's one of those cases where it's funnier because you know who Andy Griffith is. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, we talked earlier about, about, you know, the kind of, especially religious populism being throughout the history of the U S and I also think something we probably tend to think, you know, we always think the, the latest technology is the first time that people have used it for certain things, but the reality is, you know, what we see on TV now, or even on the radio, uh, over the last, uh, couple decades is not new, right? I mean, before there was TV, we, and a hundred years ago, we had these very popular, you know, populist people who would get quite a lot of attention. I mean, one of the most famous you mentioned earlier is Father Coughlin, who was a Catholic priest. Yeah. And he started out as a supporter of FDR and the New Deal, but he ended up as this major anti-Semitic figure, you know, literally spewing hate across the country. And people like Coughlin probably had a much larger audience than any individual TV commentator does today. You know, they... They were getting yeah. a large percentage of, of the entire population. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's true. It's a real thread. It's not, you know, when people say that about this is not new, you know, mm -hmm. it's just, it's just been exposed and sort of pumped up, it seems. And I think, you know, one of the things I've wondered about the film is whether it really explores or not the question of this attraction what attracts americans to this this kind of energy i don't know i do you guys think it does i mean i i think there you know it it definitely alludes to things um uh but but i'm not sure it really takes that on so much it has so many things it wants to talk about but i mm -hmm. if you remember there's a there, you remember the writer's room where Mel works and, and mm -hmm. Patricia Neal comes in there a couple of times? There's a sign on the wall, which, you know, there's a lot of sort of ironic stuff around. There's a guy throwing darts at a picture of, of Lonesome mm -hmm. Roads and stuff. <laughs> and there's a sign called Escape from Freedom. 
and that alludes very explicitly to a important book of 1941 by Eric Fromm, who was a you know um, refugee from from Germany, and uh, the book is kind of an analysis of the character structure of modern man. Now he's talking really about trying to account for the rise of Hitler and the attraction of authoritarianism mm-hmm. um, in a in a, to a society that has the potential to be democratic, and and I think this idea of of people being sort of frightened by the idea of freedom in a way and and being drawn to some power that they see as greater than themselves is something that I think is kind of a little bit there although we have these very innocent old ladies and you know he has this very broad-based you know, kind of appeal, but when he gets to Cracker Barrel, the TV show, you know, <laughs> really you have a, a a sense of his appeal really aiming more specifically. It feels very male oriented. It's aiming toward a certain kind of male, as Trump refers them, the uneducated, you know, male uh, viewers in a way. And this idea of, I don't know that that somehow. These more powerful men, if you you know you can be absorbed and and feel some kind of security by giving oneself over to that. Um, mm-hmm. This is the theory of this book, and I think it's obviously put there on the wall for a reason. So anyway, I'm throwing that out as as one thought about it. I don't think anybody's quite explained it, have they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what what this is in our country. And certainly it's not only in our country, but it's a real thread here. Yeah, I, I think there's this question. And, and the guest we had for Network really kind of reject, rejected the idea that audiences are just sheep, you know, who are going to do whatever someone tells them, right? That we have to give people agency. And I, and I think related to what you're talking about on that, it's it's this real question of to what degree are people like this able to mold people in, into, you know, what they're doing and to what degree are they activating something that's there or, you know, and, and when I think about other countries like the Balkans, uh, Balkan, Balkans, right? what's the right term? Balkan? <laughs> yeah. The Balkan war, you know, there was clear, and this is repeated, especially in other countries throughout history where, you know, a populist figure like this will go back, say 400 years and dredge up, you know, things from that time when, you know, with, you know, 400 years ago we were being oppressed and we fought back and, mm-hmm. you know, these other people were our oppressors and now we need to go get them. And we see this a bit now with Russia even, right? Yes. So I think there, there's something, there is something that people are able to kind of awaken in people that might not happen otherwise. Yeah, yeah that's kind of Capra's take on America that, that Americans can be swayed. You see it even in It's a Wonderful Life, right? When the town in his, you know, without our main character, the sweet little um, small town goes very dark, you know, that the idea that Americans can be swayed, we need to call them back to their best selves, you know? And I Mm. think that, you know, one critic of this film suggested that the movie portrays 
Americans who can be swayed and manipulated until they're finally, you know, set free, but that the viewer of the movie is assumed to be a critical thinking, rational, that it's kind mm. of separating the TV watchers in the film from the movie watchers of the film, if you see what I mean, <laughs> as, mm -hmm. as not being so susceptible emotionally. I mean, what demagoguery is, right, is this appeal to, is appeal to kind of very um, primitive emotions, surely. And um, he doesn't seem to be, uh, Lonesome doesn't seem to have the desire to rile up rage so much as, do you agree with me? I mean, as much as he wants to bring people to a certain kind of political position, in a way, mm -hmm. um, once he's been sort of keyed in that direction. <laughs> Well, I've uh, coincidentally been reading a lot about sociopathy and narcissism lately. <laughs> and I, 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 I mean, my take on him would be, he doesn't care. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't care about the politics in every situation. He just needs to be in control. And as we see at the end and they make very obvious, he needs people to love him. Yes. But he has, yes. but he has no love himself. Yes. Yeah. He, he yeah. will take anyone and drop them at, a, at the and, you know, and we see that with obviously the cheerleader. I mean, he's just about to get married to, to Patricia Neal, and then all of a sudden he sees a cheerleader, and he's married to her. <laughs> right, yeah. right, yeah. I I agree. So got all of these traits of a narcissist for sure, and 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 I think the um, I think of that including a kind of hollowness, like there's, you know, I mean, hollowness, self-loathing. He has contempt for the people who he tries to make love him mm. and um and i think the the combination of when we see his sort of pathology through his relationship with marcia his dependence on her in a way really points up the pathology i've wondered how much the film really wanted to leave it at that though you know it's sort of like mm. it you are saying that you feel like it doesn't quite give us his full portrait. And I, I feel like, the, again, there's so many different agendas the film wants to touch on that mm -hmm. it doesn't want to devote all this time to kind of <laughs> explaining him in a way, you know. Oh, yeah. Although we do learn that he's had this horrific childhood. His mother was a prostitute and so forth. Father abandoned. Yeah. Father was a con man who abandoned them, right? So I think the preoccupations of the film for me include the rise of television, which is just really coming into its own, right? And um, a lot of intellectuals in that time. I don't think it's the same now because television's gotten so sophisticated, but intellectuals, tremendous anxiety and, and their, their rejection of television as, you know, idiot box and mm -hmm. as um, really dumbing down the public. Um, early mm. television had lots of other things going on. There were some amazing things in early television right. that we totally lost. A lot of ethnic and working class stuff that got completely abandoned. But I, but this preoccupation also, there's such amazing stuff about the rise of public relations and advertising mm -hmm. in politics that was going on exactly at this time. You know, I mean, 
this is, you know, Eisenhower's running for president and against Adlai Stevenson, right? This kind of mm. um, intellectual. Mm. And um, the they bring in, bring in the advertising giants, you know. And in 1952, in his mm -hmm. campaign, they they teamed up with George Gallup. So they started really testing audience reactions. This was all new. And they decided they needed to really simplify Ike. And they came up with the phrase, I like Ike. And Eisenhower <laughs> was mortified. <laughs> he hated it. And, um, and they, they, they decided that they, they had to really re- brand him they didn't have that term yet but you know they didn't they thought he was stiff and awkward and tv lighting made him look bad and they used huge placards because they didn't want him to have to wear his glasses mm. hmm. and and they tested different themes for how to promote him and they you know they picked the theme that he was um a man of peace you know a warrior who was a man of peace hmm. So, you know, this sense of packaging and commodifying political figures was just completely, you know, a huge new topic. And, and people hadn't really, really paid that much attention to it. Um, so it's, but Kazan and Schilberg went to Madison Avenue. They spent time with all these Madison Avenue guys. They, they said, the story that Kazan tells in, in one of his interviews is about how they spent thousands of dollars finding the exact right word for Lipton tea. Do you remember <laughs> what word that is? No, it's I don't. brisk. Brisk. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, this whole question of wanting to really show, and to me, it also speaks to our time when, when Lonesome Road says respect. Did you ever hear anybody buying anything because they respect it? You know, <laughs> and um, you gotta make them love you, and that feels also very much of our moment, uh, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, where's respect in our society right now? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting thing about they portrayed, I think, very accurately about someone like this, and I, I have some uh, unfortunate personal relationship experience with this, which makes it a little bit of a PTSD thing for me, which is one of the reasons he's successful early on is every circumstance he gets into, he immediately takes over, right? He, mm -hmm. he does things that put everyone else off their feet. They don't expect it. He refuses to follow any script and he literally takes over the room or takes over the TV show or whatever. And I've seen that, but in, and, and been around it. And, and I can say mm. like, you know, <laughs> run <laughs> if you see that, because it's, <laughs> it's not good. You know, it's not good. I hear uh, you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, what, what surprises me since I think my reading on this is this film, you know, really made him a star. And I, I don't know how you go from doing this film to ending up on the Andy Griffith show, not that long <laughs> later. You know, how they would cast you for that. <laughs> there must be an interesting story in there. Yeah. Uh, we have Patricia Neal, as we talked about, who plays, you know, who, uh, I, well, I almost said why, you know, his almost wife, who, she goes through a whole interesting <laughs> thing, right? I mean, um, first of all, I noticed this, that in the very beginning, so she discovers him, she names him, you know, she totally yes. creates him in a, in a way. Yes. And... 
when she does, she is all dressed in all white in the beginning of the film. And then the last scene of the film, she is in all black. Great. And I think that had to be a choice, right? For She's sure. gone from one to the other. And she really, you know, she almost, I mean, you know, she almost totally gives into all this. And it's only Walter Matthau's character that sort of pulls her out in the end, right? And it kind of makes her face herself and, and decide that she's, she's going to do him in. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. It's hard to know. Is she in mourning for herself? (laughs) Like, you know, she goes from being this sort of virgin country girl, you know, graduate of Sarah Lawrence college (laughs) Mm -hmm. into, um, into this hard drinking, chain smoking, you know, but I think that's, uh, it is a remarkable portrait of, as you point out, someone who just is bigger than everybody else, right? I mean, just his laugh, you know, he just dominates in this way. I've been also really curious about the question of what I think of as female hysteria over him mm-hmm. in the film, you know, the sort of women just going nuts it's like beatlemania you know exactly you know people talk about this as the flip side of 50s kind of uh, uh, of kind of um in 50s in sexual inhibition you know it's like Mm -hmm. this explosion of female sexuality yeah for women and and i think of i don't again i'm not sure you know what what we're to do with it, except that this, you know, this idea that there's all this sexual power that comes from the tele- being a TV character, you know, on the television, all this sexual mm-hmm. power from being a dominant male. And then we see him empty and crying and, and, and begging her to come back and I'm going to kill myself, you know, so you have this real, I think there's something really being explored about gender in a way that doesn't get talked about that much um, in, in the context of the film. There is, th- throughout the movie, uh, you know, she's, uh, she's very ambivalent because on the one hand, she knows from the start pretty much what kind of guy he is. You know, she learns more as time goes by, but it's, it's pretty obvious from the start that he's a kind of a freewheeling drifter sort of guy. She ends up entertaining the idea of marrying him when any review of rational evidence would <laughs> say, no, don't, don't even think right. about that. <laughs> so it, yeah, it's, her character is interesting because she's not, not only is she not all good, but she's actually playing along with him for her own benefit. Yes. Even, even setting aside the question of whether they might end up married, which they don't. Right. Well, uh, and yeah, and she basically she's gets... She's still making gets, money off him. She gets yeah. paid off, you know, to stick around, right? Which... Uh, right. And also say, uh, related to all the stuff we were talking about previously, when you talk about him threatening suicide if, if she doesn't come back to him, still, the next cheerleader he meets, he'll dump her in a <laughs> second, right? I mean, what <laughs> yeah. matters to him is that at every moment someone is loving him, it doesn't matter who it is right yeah yeah he's just he's just manipulating her i think uh yeah when he talks about that he's not going to actually kill himself <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah just another tool in the toolkit yeah 
And 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 what does Mel 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 says something to her? She says you you sound does she say vicious? And he's for a mild mannered oh. guy you sound vicious or and he said all mild mannered guys are vicious because of the attraction of, you know, horrible guys to good <laughs> women like you, right? I mean, you know, yeah. that that there is some he sees that she, you know, the the attraction she has toward him. Yeah. And and one of the things Kazan also said in an interview, which I read a long time ago, is that he said at least in the first half of the film, he felt like his portrait of Marcia was a little bit based on his first wife. Mm. She's really interesting. That's all I know. Um, yeah. Makes you wonder, um, did she find similar personality traits in him? But, <laughs> yeah, hmm. right. Yeah. You know, talking about Walter Matthau, I think this is the youngest I've ever seen him, so that's pretty amazing because, of course, you know, he had such a long career and so much of what he's known for was later in his career, so we just think of him as this kind of older guy, but uh, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. And he plays a character, and it wasn't, I've seen this character over and over again, especially in 50s and 60s films. I mean, it's throughout history, but especially then. And that's the the guy who is constantly sort of saying what's really going on and who gives the moral and usually gives a speech at some point to the main character. And I realized uh, for the first time here that it's, it's kind of the Greek chorus, right? It's, you know, mm -hmm. the person telling the audience, here's what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, his character was sort of cynical, yet uh, innocent, uh, idealistic, I guess you'd say, at the, at the same time. You know, he, he had his idealism to some degree, but he, he wasn't so idealistic that he didn't know uh, what's what. Yeah, <laughs> right. and he also is, doesn't want to leave the job because... Perhaps because he doesn't want to leave her. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he has this great edge to him. Just at the beginning when, when he first, they bring him to the Memphis TV station and he brings the black woman out mm -hmm. and Mel says, well, that takes guts, you know, bring a black woman. And, and we see the audience of, of black family right. saying, look, look what's on to, you know, like that they were never black people on the television. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we think, oh, maybe, maybe he, you know, he is a complex character, but then right. it sort of feels like it's just a strategic move, you know. Well, I, I, mm -hmm. I think they, yeah. they answer that definitively in the last scene where the only people left in the room are the black butlers. Um, yes. And mm -hmm. he, in one moment, is hugging them and begging them to love him. And literally 30 seconds later, he's saying racist things to them and kicking them out of the yes. room. Like he never cared. Yes. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Not capable. There's your narcissism, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. When he brought that woman out and I fell the time, you know, again, that was just a way for him to use someone. And, and, and he had no concern about her losing her house or any of those things. Again, I'm a little biased because I've been around this sort of thing. But, um, you know, this totally, guy. Mm, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, away from the movie, I mean, Patricia Neal, you know, had a pretty significant career was in lots of, of great things, but also her life. I mean, she, she was pregnant and she had several strokes. And at least my reading of this is that the medical staff cared about her so much that they actually developed new techniques for dealing with strokes mm. 
and applied them to her and it was successful and those techniques became the standard. I believe the difference was that they were very demanding, you know, the sort of, you're going to get up and walk around kind of thing where it used to be mm. like, oh, you're sick, you know, stay in bed. And then you sit there in atrophy and, you know, all these things start to go wrong wow. and they realize they needed to actually activate her brain and have her working and, and all that. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. And she apparently was a very, you know, a very like straightforward, take care of yourself. You can do it if you try kind of person. <laughs> yeah. And she was married to Roald Dahl, right. the great, yeah. the great children's book writer. Um, yeah, he wrote uh, he wrote some fun uh, short stories that are good for uh, for adults too. They usually have yes. some sort of wacky twist ending. <laughs> yes, yeah. Most known for James and the Giant Peach, perhaps, but, <laughs> but Charlie oh, oh, and the yeah. Chocolate Factory. Charlie, yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah, that yeah that's that's more. That's even more. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, I read a bunch of his stuff when I was a kid. Well, so, yeah. you know, our, well, I guess I have two questions here. Normally we have the one question about worth watching, but first, you know, because we're doing this topic of rage, I mean, how, how do we feel this fits in? Is this a rage against the machine? Is it something different? You, you know, is that just a part of it? <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking about it too. Well, I, th I think, I think Rhodes himself doesn't seem to have a lot of Rage. He has a lot of appetites, but uh, the rage, it only seems to pop up when something's going wrong for him. But I think getting back to the question of why, why populism or demagoguery or, you know, these related aspects, how they can manage to catch on, I think in a lot of cases, somebody taps into rage that's out there, like, uh, you know, is, are there, are there questions are the questions that we see the talking heads on TV or whoever discussing, are they the questions that really matter to us in our day-to-day -day lives? I think a lot of the time there's not a, not a lot of overlap, you know, so when somebody like Lonesome Rhodes comes along and he starts talking about things that people actually are thinking about, uh, hey. that, that sort of draws them. So I think the rage to the extent there is any, and we don't really see a lot of popular rage aside from that one protest outside the mattress factory, which is not <laughs> which, something you see every day. <laughs> which increases sales, which increases yeah. sales. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. I think to, to what extent there is rage in this movie, I think it's mostly implied in the people who are responding to, to Rhodes and his messages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's some, the kind of fascist, the general Haysworth, hey, what's his name? Hainsworth, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, a kind of right-wing anti-government, anti-social security, anti-democratic stuff that really comes up when, you know, it becomes explicit at certain moments in the film that feel scary. I don't mm -hmm. know if, I mean, we see, I think we see Rhodes expressing a lot of anger at the people around him when they don't do what they're supposed to do, right? You know, mm -hmm. when he doesn't, when he feels he's lost control in some way or, right. uh, you know, he's just full of, he's full of meanness, I would say. He's mean more than rageful. Yeah. Is it, is it against the machine? I think the, the film is a little bit raging against the machine in my view, <laughs> more than the character. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, there isn't again, from my point of view, he's not—he's not so much 
stoking anger and resentment the way that in network you see, you know, I'm not going to take any more, but rather it's sort of about the comfort of cultural likeness and Mm. affirming certain postures and some feeling again of recognition that this is, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the, the original story that Schulberg wrote was based on Will Rogers who mm. was sort of not a right-wing guy. Um, he was kind of a, you know, a more complicated character politically. He wasn't He wasn't a puppet that we, <laughs> that we know of, you know. But he mm. was so famous and so beloved that when he died, Congress closed. He died in an airplane crash, mm-hmm. and Congress came to a halt that day. Mm. And like this, the country went into like had a half day of mourning or something. I mean, it was like a major mm. event, the loss right. of Will Rogers. And um, that was the person that Schulberg initially was thinking about. So it feels like there was this, and he wasn't at all a stoker of anger. He was all mm. about, you know, about people, fairness. And, you know, he was, mm. but I think that in deciding to, make the character a puppet, there is this rage in the film about what's happening in the country. So, and part of it is alluding to Joseph McCarthy in a way, because television Mm -hmm. amplified him and people bought it until they stopped buying it. Mm -hmm. It's also just one last detail that I was really fascinated by and wish I could find out more is that Kazan and Schulberg, you know, they spent a lot of time in Arkansas working, you know, doing research. But they also spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., and the person they interviewed the most was Lyndon Johnson, mm. who was very happy to talk to them right. about mm. politics and about media and so forth. And I wish, I wish we had those, those conversations. Right. And he had a lot oh, of that yeah. same down-home you know, thing that we see yeah. here. Yeah, I felt like one thing the film probably just, you know, out of time and everything else to chose not to explore that to me is one of the interesting things is that because Rhodes doesn't really have politics, he doesn't really care about that. In a way, the real danger is the person like the general or someone who latches on to him and maybe turns him into a political figure. And I think about, you know, the guy who ran Elvis's life, for example, you know, mm-hmm. Where and and where the person behind that person is the truly dangerous one because they're mm-hmm. directing their energies, you know, and their impact in a way that that person themselves might not be able to actually do. Um, again, we don't go that way here, mm. but you know, I think that that potential is there. Yeah, that you know that that famous line that I've heard thrown around a lot lately, and it's attributed to Sinclair Lewis that when the fascism comes to America, be wrapped in the flag and carrying a cross. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like it's in this film, it has that scary laugh uh, that Rhodes has, you know, that <laughs> sort of terrifying laugh. But there is that element of we're going to make you feel good and it's folksy and it's, um, it's down home and it's, you know, it's appealing to some part of your identity in a way. And yeah. yeah, we we did get to talk about the applause machine, which is so <laughs> and you know that if you know, um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it they, reminds me of a story about um, you know sitcoms when you watch them. It might have been a comedian or someone who pointed out 
you realize whenever there's a laugh track, especially that was more common in the past, I think, um, yeah. you're hearing dead people laugh <laughs> because those, those were all recorded early on in the history of television and they were used for decades. Um, oh God. yeah. <laughs> That's really, yeah. I thought it was amusing that they threw the, uh, threw the laugh track machine in there, I guess by 1957, I did a little bit of reading about that. I guess it already existed, but it was. It wasn't like something that any television station could just go and buy themselves one. There was actually one guy who invented it and he patented it. So he had a period of several years where he had the exclusive rights to license it however he wanted to. And I guess he and his staff would, uh, you know, they would provide these laugh track machines and, you know, not just laughs, but also the sighs and the awe and, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. They'd provide these to the television networks, but they were always kept very proprietary. Like if one of them, if one of them started to act up, the guys uh, from the company, they would wheel it away and go do their stuff with it in, in private until it was working and then they'd wheel it back in. Huh. <laughs> uh, it wasn't something where you bought it and it's yours. It's like you're, you're renting this and the staff to operate it too. Huh. Huh. It's curious. It, Cause you would think so... it's just some tape or something, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but who knows? Yeah. 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 From what I read, it sounded like it was a patent issue. He got a yeah. good enough patent on it that he had a number of years to right. control. Right. I think for, for the, Schulberg and Kazan, it implied something about the mass mind, you mm -hmm. know, that if, if this machine tells you it's funny, then it's funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, yeah. that, and that somehow people aren't thinking for themselves and this anxiety about, you know, again, getting back to this, you know, escape from freedom and this fear of, you know, this loss of the individual in a way, um, to the mass con you know, this concept of mm -hmm. the mass audience and Americans, not as citizens anymore, but as kind of some kind of mass mind, you know, mm -hmm. um, that I think is, is part of what is rolling around in the film in my, <laughs> in my reading of it. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we see at the end that Rhodes himself isn't immune to that thing that he supposedly invented. I mean, he, he's got, uh, what, Beanie, is that yes. his <laughs> name? He's, he's operating the switches on that while, <laughs> while he's giving his little oration on the balcony to a room full of no one. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he seems to really enjoy hearing the, just the canned applause from his own machine. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh. Yeah, I will say yeah. I think Beanie is the only happy character in the film because <laughs> you know he. I mean, Rhodes describes him as being an idiot, and he seems fine with that. He doesn't react at all, and I, you know, he doesn't have any ambitions, and he seems fine. <laughs> Lowest common denominator. Yeah, right? that's who. Yeah, that's who you need to appeal to, Curly. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was the one who knew that the audience wanted dogs, not yeah, cats, right. and so forth. Yeah. 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 So we have our Gosh. ultimate final question, probably obvious from our discussion. You know, is this worth watching for a modern audience? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's both things because it's, to me, as a, I guess as an academic, you know, it really opens up the period of its creation in such a dramatic way, so interestingly, but it also is speaking so much into 
our time. And, and also, as you said, as you both said, it's, you know, it's kind of an amazing product, you know, just a piece of mm -hmm. film, you know, it's kind of an amazing thing. Oh yeah. It's just a, an entertaining watch. I mean, yeah. you, and then you throw in all the actual meaning and so forth on top of that, then you've got a real, a real good movie there, I think. Yeah. So we officially recommend it. Go check it out. <laughs> and we will uh, be back next week with some more rage. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for joining us uh, yeah, today. It's, it's uh, Once again, it's been a, a pleasure as it was last time. And who knows, if you feel brave enough, you can even maybe come back and join us again one of these You're days. You're so kind. Thank you. <laughs> yes, thank, thank you for so the invitation. Marsha, stop it. You were taken in just like we were all taken in. But we get wise to them. That's our strength. We get wise to them.